never go first. You don't know what I do. <sighs> Just getting organized. It is, it is a joy to uh, get to watch you editing a document. Not really editing. I'm just there. Flying around, taking out spaces. Got to do what you got to do. Yeah, I don't like this whole thing of uh, typing something in the document and that, like that's a question and the other person answers it in the document. That would be good if we had sort of uh, a text adventure-based podcast yeah. where instead of listening to audio, people would just read text and then they would see text from us appear. <laughs> Try the key. But we don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Radio Zork. Radio Zork. This would, this would be a uh, <laughs> TTY podcast. Yeah. Oh, what was that app? Oh, my gosh. There's that amazing app. Ether. Subeth Edit. Subeth Edit. You remember that? I think I still have it installed. God, that thing was, that was one of those just magic apps. The first time I fired that thing up and it was like, I think it was, it wasn't the first time, but I remember being at like, I think uh, an O'Reilly uh, like ETech conference and all these people could be editing the same document at the same time. It was completely crazy. Yeah, just wait for the uh, the iPad Pro version of that so everyone can take, everyone can draw their uh, precious presentation notes uh, that there is no way in hell you can draw without uh, completely ignoring the presentation, uh, but have everyone do that at once. Yeah, no thanks. I don't know about note. Note taking's rough. You gotta, I don't know. I mean, if I'm taking notes on stuff a lot, I get better at it. But mainly, I, I, I think it's a modal thing. I don't know, like a, like a brain switch thing. Like if I'm in note-taking mode, I'm just, I don't know, I'm not paying as much attention. It's not that, it's the drawings that I don't, I mean, maybe people can do them unconsciously, but when I see some of these, like, here's a drawing of a presentation, it's like, how could you have been paying any attention to that? I mean, they obviously must have been, because stuff in the presentation is in their little cartoons. Uh, but it just... Maybe they've seen the presentation before and kind of know where it's going, or maybe they're just magic and they can write notes and draw pictures and also pay attention to a presentation they've only heard for the first time. I mean, when the presentation is over, are they done? Or do they do that afterwards? I don't know. It's confusing. You're talking about like when people like post, like they put, get a page out of their notebook and go like, here's my page I did while this person was talking and it's all the major points and a cartoon and stuff like that. Yeah, a whole bunch of cartoons with like thought bubbles and pictures that evolve and, you know, reads like a comic book, you know, from uh, left to right, top to bottom, or maybe they use a panel format and there's little notes in the margins. Yeah. Yeah, Dave Gray used to do that. Actually, my, my icon on Twitter comes from Dave Gray's doodles from that talk I did with Gruber at South by Southwest. He does that. I think it's how some people mm, process information. But you're a visual person. You don't do that. I can doodle, but I become obsessed with the doodles and stop listening to the presentation. Yeah. I don't, I don't do both at once. Note-taking is different. Obviously, that's a, that's a way for people to absorb stuff. But drawing, I would just slowly, the sound of other people speaking would fade away, and it, I would just be doing the drawing. Yeah. Did you ever see uh, Omen? The movie? I think I've seen, uh, I think I've seen both of them. The, the original and the sequel, but probably on television. So probably with like the the gory parts cut out and a bunch of commercials between. Yeah. Well, I, I only mentioned it because you made a, an Omen uh, reference earlier uh, today and uh, that got me looking at screenshots from the movie. And I, uh, I saw it in seventh grade when I was in military school. And I think next to The Exorcist, it was the most brain-scaldingly scary movie I'd seen at that point. 
and and you know it is it is gross and it is chilling and it is you know that's a topic actually down in well that's that's pivot I don't want to get into it because we got other stuff to talk about this week but I you had you mentioned that you uh, you don't like scary movies so much or no I'm I'm sorry put that in your own words what was the phrase uh, do you like scary movies no you're right I don't like them that much uh, I do not like them I don't watch them and I have watched them in the past and yes that is in the future topic section and we will talk about that perhaps next week mm-hmm. Yeah, I made I made the reference. I don't know. I'm who knows why pop culture references pop up, but mostly because it, it's that's the type of movie that if you watch it now, it's not scary. It just seems campy. But when you're young, it's different. Anyway, that I think that thing because I saw it on television in an environment when it wasn't particularly scary. I found that funny even the first time I saw it. Oh, I don't know, man. When she oh. I- you know those movies like don't, that. Don't spoil it for people who haven't seen movies from the seventies. No, you're right. You, <laughs> I should warn people. All right, all right. Um, I don't think we have any actual. Uh, f- I don't. I don't have any actual follow. I was going to say thirty year old spoilers, but I'm off. I'm off by a decade. I. Oh my god. I. Uh, I don't even know anymore. I just don't know anymore. You want to know if I watch Supergirl? Well, uh, you know, uh, you know, a copy might have fallen off a truck for you. You know. And, and to answer your question, no, I haven't watched the game yet. Fresh do, new do, start. Do, 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 do. Little brown jug, little brown jug. Alexa, <laughs> turn my office lights off. All right. Mood lighting. <laughs> Some walk by night. Different <laughs> word. Something, something, watch the world burn. Do is there anything to be gained when you're on uh, when one is on one's uh, fast desktop machine with Ethernet? Is there anything to be gained by shutting off the Wi-Fi, assuming that the cascade in network settings is correct? I do it mostly because, like you're right, like in, in theory, if you have the order of the devices set up and everything else, it shouldn't be a big deal. But I'm assuming that there's some kind of RF potentially coming out of there, and I just don't want the extra noise in the air, so I just turn it off. <laughs> like for the other for the other Wi-Fi devices, not because of my tinfoil hat is going to not. <laughs> no, my, no, no. I just meant the any kind of noise, even noise you can't hear, just the idea of noise. Well, interference, like, because my house is not friendly. It's probably all the lead paint. It's not friendly to Wi-Fi <laughs> signals, so I need all the help I can get to get the signals around here. Yeah, I was looking at getting one of those um, uh, extender dingus thingies. I've got a, an Airport Express that extends it, but it's it feels really flimsy. And then somebody, the iStumbler guy, sent a link to a thing where, like, this, this site recommends getting these things that plug into your electric outlets, which, I don't know, that feels kind of old school. Yeah, I'm thinking of trying an extender too. But on the other hand, it's kind of good that the signal is really terrible in my kids' rooms because our rule is they can't have uh, network-connected devices in their rooms anyway. So, Wow, helps, that's interesting. That. It's, a, it's a lot like a penitentiary. Well, you know, because we don't want them like staying up, secretly trying to stay up late at night doing playing iOS games or something. Yeah. You to go, to, go to bed at bedtime. Got to get an Android, man. With Android, you can probably control all of that stuff. Get him uh, yeah. a, a Chromebook. The Supergirl. So did you did you watch you saw you saw the Supergirl, the first one? I saw the pilot of Supergirl. Um it's definitely a show that I wouldn't watch if I wasn't trying to watch it for the family. Like it's it I don't know if it's not geared towards adults or it's sort of like simpler and more pat than I'm used to. But that's kind of, I mean and the, the 
the budget doesn't seem to be that big and the story and the characters seem a little bit off to me so like I, if it was just for me i would say well supergirl reasonable effort but because i'm watching it as a family show i think it's mostly fine i'm a little bit worried about how grim and scary the bad guys are going to be that might i mean again only seeing one episode i can't really tell uh, but it is uh, working as desired in the context of a family thing because my daughter has chosen on her own to watch it multiple times already. Yeah, ditto here. Well, and and has asked me, like, when is the next one, and so on and so forth, which is rare, so I think that part of it is working. I um, I like the simplicity of it. Um, you know, uh, talking about the whole, you know, Roger Ebert, you know, incomparable idea, like, you know, <laughs> how much your reach exceeds your grasp. I feel like it succeeds at what it's trying to do. I, I think Callista Flockhart is a little distracting and is kind of in a different show. Yeah. What's up with her face? Uh, can we talk about that? I know, like, I I barely recognized her as Callista Flockhart. So I'm like, that's someone who looks like Callista Flockhart, but maybe like someone who's wearing a Callista Flockhart mask. <laughs> Like, like a sounds lambs kind of thing. I don't know. I she looked. I I think she looked fine. I think she looked pretty good. Like I don't think she looked bad. Um, but I think there's something going on there that that seemed off. But anyway, she plays that character. Well, that my this is spoilers for people who haven't seen it. So don't listen if you haven't. Well, I think it's actually premiering tonight, isn't it? As we record this, it premieres. Yeah, it's yeah, it's already so been pe- on in these. People can, can have already seen it. Anyway, the the one thing where I feel like it, it adds extra complication that doesn't quite need to is the whole angle with the sister. And her being part of this organization and the other aliens. I mean, I suppose they have to have something there as the, uh, you know, group of antagonists or whatever. But I don't know. That seems overcomplicated to me. Um, I'm not really that into... I'm I'm into Supergirl's story. I'm not really into her sister and that organization. I don't really care about these prisoners that right. came out it's of like, the thing that she's sh- going to be fighting. It's like S.H.I.E.L.D. or UNIT or something like that. Yeah, I think that diminishes Supergirl. Why does she have to work in an organization? Why can't she be a loner? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of um, stuff that they put out there that I, I don't think, I don't think we're going to see all of that stuff stay equally important. I bet there, there's a certain element of trial balloon to like, you know, like you know, like her her buddy is kind of annoying, you know. I don't, you know, the guy like her yeah. her, her nerd friend. I you know he's he's you know. But I, I have to say I will uh, you know I think the the woman who's playing Supergirl is fantastic. She is adorable. She she's got a lot of like she's got a lot of personality and I, she seems very relatable to me. Yeah, no, she's she's a really good actress, and I think I'm not sure she's given a script that is a match to her acting ability. And also, I see kind of the episode one jitters of like. How am I going to inhabit this character? But if they give her sort of silly things to say, I don't know. It, it just seems like a lot of moving parts. But anyway, um, it's mostly family friendly and it is, you know, it's fun and interesting. And I actually have started watching The Flash as well. And comparing the two is interesting because I think The Flash is in the similar, similar kind of uh, treatment of superheroes in mostly clean and shiny, not a lot of grit, not a lot of adult themes, but still trying to be fun. And... I mean, I'm, I'm a couple episodes into The Flash, and I have to say, I'm the type of person who likes Daredevil better. So far, I, I can be convinced by clever uh, turns of events in The Flash, um, but there's just not enough sort of uh, sparkling writing to keep me going, and there's not enough terrible, depressing things happening. And not enough really interesting cinematography, really. But both of the shows, um, I'm going to keep watching. And of course, Supergirl, just the one episode... Uh, daughter's watched it multiple times and each time she watches it again my son kind of 
sidles into the room or maybe mm-hmm. finds himself changing the activity that he was doing. He is old enough to feel like Supergirl, like, I don't want to watch that or whatever, but he does. Yeah, but it's another one of those shows like what? Um, I mean, there's just, there's, there's, I'm trying to think of some examples. What was it we were talking about uh, not too long ago? But there's these certain kinds of things where, like, if you didn't have that one person, that, that one great piece of casting of this one person, it just, there would just wouldn't be a show. You know what I mean? Like, I have to say, for me, like, I, I really like The Flash. And, you know, you've got me thinking, though, about this whole idea of, like, would I watch this on my own versus how much do I enjoy this? Because I know I lo- my kid loves it and that makes me like it more. And I think Flash, I think I would, I would kind of watch Flash. But I think that's a that's a challenging enough show for a seven year old. Like she's keeping a lot of things together watching that show and, and gathering a lot of thread, you know, about what the what's happening with the plot. It's you know, I mean, it's it's not Bruce for you and me, but it's you know, it's a pretty interesting unfolding plot. But like that guy is so great. You think about uh, what's his head in uh, in Daredevil, so great. Supergirl here, you know, there's all these kinds of or you know the cl- I mean, like the example I guess recently, uh, Mr. Robot. We talked about this. I mean. That show, what would that show be without that guy? That's a better cast in general. But like The Flash with almost anybody else in that role, I don't know if I'd be into it. I like Dr. Wells. I I like several of the people, but I also find some of them a little bit two-dimensional, and they they don't seem really sure what they want to do with the women on that show. Yeah, I, that's, I'm really sensitive to not bad writing, but uh, unsophisticated writing in any kind of show. And if you have a really interesting story that can keep me watching it, like I think I I probably would watch Flash on my own just because I know so many other people who have watched it and they've hinted enough at uh, plot twists that I just want to see where they go with this and how it changes. Kind of the same reason I was watching, uh, what was that show back in the day? Fringe. Uh, I I kept with that one, even though the quality was so-so, just because I just wanted to see where they were going with the increasingly ridiculous story. I hope Flash gets that way as well. Supergirl, I definitely would not be watching on my own if it wasn't for my kids, but I like having shows that everyone can watch together. I'm glad you watched it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited that there's like, I mean, it's not even a political thing. I'm just glad that there's a cool show with, you know, like a cool girl. Like, I think that's fun. I, I, I hope it's, I hope it's, uh, it's good. Again, you know, you just always have to bracket it with the like ridiculous challenges of making a show like that. I mean, I understand we're being, we're being critical because that we're viewers, but like, uh, I'm amazed anything halfway decent ever makes it onto the screen. Just when you hear just the tiniest bit about how the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, it just sounds like it would be grueling to do that. Yeah, and that's not an easy show to make. But I think I think the uh, the casting of Supergirl is the the biggest triumph of that show, and everything else. If they can build a show around that person and give her good things to say, they will have a good show. If not, it won't be her fault. Did you watch? Uh, have you watched Crazy Ex Girlfriend? I don't even know what that is. Hmm. It's not really, I don't know if it's really your cup of tea. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Is it a comedy? Is it a television show? It is. It's a, uh, it's a comedy uh, with a lot of people from Broadway in it, and it's got some musical outbursts in it. And it's basically about this woman who uh, gives up her amazing job to go move to the town where her uh, boyfriend from camp when she was 16 lives. And uh, it's, 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 it's silly, it's broad. But it's it's also it's pretty smart at points. It's got it's definitely got that kind of a uh, little bit of like I would say uh, Kimmy Schmidt vibe to it. Yeah, we've talked about my not watching comedies, and that streak continues. Good for you. Not good for me. Like I I need to backfill because I, I used to have Thirty Rock and The Daily Show, and now both are gone, and I haven't replaced them. Parks and Rec, man. Nope. Not at all. 
I mean, I've seen it. I'm aware of it. I know what goes on there. I did watch The Office too, American. Um, but yeah. Parks and Rec never stuck with me. I think it's because I started watching Parks and Rec in the first season when it wasn't good, and I never kind of climbed back on board. Well, when it was less good. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Fair enough. Anything else grabbing you for TV right now? Uh, what am I? Um, I'm watching The Last Kingdom, which I don't think is very good. Is that that good... uh, uh, Game of Thrones Junior show? It, it looks. It looks kind of. Uh... No. Not even Junior. It's like a piece of dandruff <laughs> on Game of Thrones' shoulder. But It really seems uh, like that's what they're going for in the ads anyway. They can go for whatever they want. It is, it is more like a, uh, a sci-fi original, <laughs> you know, like uh, a series you would see on sci-fi. Uh, I don't know. It's a good show for that I know my wife will never want to watch and that I watch when she's in bed and I don't feel like going to bed yet, and it's pretty silly and whatever. Um, but that's that's in the mix, and I'm still enjoying The Leftovers. I started watching that uh, first episode. Um, boy, I love that actor uh, Thoreau. Is that his name? The 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 male lead. The yeah, the son, the cop uh, guy, yeah. the chief, chief of police. He's terrific. Yeah, there's a lot of good, a lot of good casting in that show. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah. They, they they got uh, a lot of actors whose names I don't know, but whose faces seem vaguely familiar to me, and they've always been good in what they've been in. And I think that helps not having uh, name actors in there because I, there's no, I mean, there is one name actor that will come up eventually. I find that distracting sometimes. I like the fact that it's also like isn't Liv Tyler's on there at some point, right? Yes, that's the one you recognize. Like, oh, there's a bunch of people in this town, and hey, Liv Tyler lives there too. I don't know why. Like, movie stars stand out, you know? Yeah, it's nice to watch a show though where you where you don't know the faces, or where at least when the faces are English, so you're not sure what you know them from. <laughs> yeah, like, weren't you on Doctor Who? So you so you watched an episode of that, but still cannot finish the game. I haven't even finished. I haven't finished that one. I've watched probably the first half of it. As, as remi- I was reminded because I just heard that previous week's episode uh, earlier today, that at the end of the episode, you're like, "Oh yeah, no, I'll go and watch the game." Like, why even bother saying that if you know you're not going to do it? I'm I'll probably lying. do it. I'll probably do it tonight when we're done here. I'll probably watch the. You you won't though. You won't. Nah, you, you, next, you don't next know. week I'll next week I'll ask you the same thing. You'd be like, "No, no, about halfway through." <laughs> I think you're Jerry and I'm Kramer, right? <laughs> That's the bet. <laughs> I uh, they had the uh, annual Halloween episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine last night, which was okay. But it led me back to last year's Halloween episode, which was which was pretty amazing. Just did do, do, do you watch the the Brooklyn Nine Nine? I saw a couple episodes in the beginning. I agreed that it was funny, but it did not stick with me. I'm just not a comedy type of person. Like the re- only reason Thirty Rock stuck is because it's like it has to be like exactly my kind of humor. And Tina Fey and that show was exactly my kind of humor for the most oh, part. Oh, what a, I mean, what a cast. I mean, I feel like I say that a lot, but the truth is there are not that many things out there that make me go, "What a cast!" I mean, I feel that about Parks and Rec. I feel that about Thirty Rock. Um, but there's just some where you're like, you, they feel the, I mean, even at my advancing age, I feel like, Hey, it's my pals. It's, this is, this is that group. Like look at them interact together and it gets better and better. That's, you know, that's, it's so magic when you can make that happen. And the writing was just so smart on 30 rock. I thought like even the stupid stuff was smart. I, that's, that's what keeps me going and things like that. If I feel, if I feel like I know the joke that's coming, it, it's a turn off to me. And the most like sort of regular mainstream boring sitcoms. I feel like I know what's going to happen. And I spent, I, both of us probably, we spent our whole childhood watching like by the number of sitcoms. Like we were, we, we did that. I've seen every sitcom there will ever be in that vein. You have to do something different. And, you know, Parks and Rec does something different, uh, but certainly 30 Rock does where it's just, it's different than all the other sitcoms you've seen. The closer you get to being an actual sitcom, like, uh, I don't know, uh, what is the uh, the one that makes fun of nerds all the time? 
Uh, Big Bang Theory? Yeah, that's too much like a regular sitcom. I can't watch that. I can't watch that show. I'll never watch that. Well, uh, here's two two things that maybe this is just because these are two shows that I like, but, you know, two things that I think really work. One that's extremely difficult is what they pull off with Bob's Burgers, which is Bob's Burgers, it's very fast-paced. The dialogue moves fast. I think I first heard Andy Anatka say this, and I really agree. Is that one of the one of the things that makes that show so funny? It, it it is it is the characters are so strong. Like you really those you really know these characters, but they do something almost nobody does. Almost nobody does this in a comedy show, which is that somebody's got a zinger, and the other person heard the zinger, and they don't just respond with a zinger that makes makes them hit the laugh button. Like they're like they they actually they they actually hear what that person is saying and respond to it. And it's, it's hard to explain, except unless you see it, but you get so used to like that kind of 80s and 90s idea of like zinger, haha, return to the zinger, return to the zinger. And like they, they're actually listening to each other. They, they're really, you can tell they're like recording in a room together. And I think that's super effective because it's so different from the kind of like zany laugh a minute stuff that even something like The Simpsons does, you know. Actually, they've been pretty good again lately. The other one that really works, and I'll tell you why I think 30 Rock works. I mean, one of the many reasons, like great cast, great writing, you know, great guests, but also... They, like you said, you don't necessarily, you don't see the joke that's coming. They avoid the obvious joke about this character, or they avoid the obvious joke in this situation, unless they're not. And if they do hit the obvious joke, they hit it so goddamn hard that it's hilarious. Like, it isn't just that, you know, Kenneth is, oh, he's kind of this guy from the country who's a little naive. When they make a joke about Kenneth, like, they really, they press it so hard and so far beyond what you would expect that it's, it, you catch yourself laughing because it's so ridiculous or jenna you know what i mean when when they play on they when they kind of playfully jibe at what these characters foibles are they 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 playfully jibe so hard that it goes way further than most shows would into the into the absurd and that that to me is what makes it magic because you think you know the jenna joke that's coming because how many sitcoms have had the vain blonde who thinks she's wonderful so you think you know exactly what joke they're going to make and they don't they like seven jokes past that but she's she's envious of babies (laughs) yep Yep. <laughs> because of their soft skin. <laughs> okay. I'll watch the uh, rest of the game tonight. Um, now you got to start over now. Now, now you pass the statute of limitations. Just start from the beginning again. Mm, all right. Yeah. Do you want to, we got, you, you, you jotted down two topics here uh, that I, that I, I'm very interested in. I don't completely understand them, which makes them good, good topics to me. Would you like to uh, lead? Yeah. The first one is a lot of these things I write down because I hear you on other podcasts and I hear you say something that, that, that sparks an idea of something that we should talk about. And I think this was a Roderick on the line where you two were doing the we're old men and young people are stupid thing again, which is a big shtick for you. Um, and it was I about, think we were very big hearted about this. Uh-huh. Raffle, raffle. Yeah. It, and it's about uh, you were talking about people using tech speak memes lol thank you ftl like all all, you know all that stuff i put emoji in there too because i think it falls into the same category yeah and how sort of i don't know about uncomfortable you are with it but how well why don't you try to summarize what you two were saying about the prevalence of that uh geez i don't know i don't i mean hmm, what can i say I'll, i'll speak for myself um, I mean, just, just about anything can be funny or amusing or novel when it's kind of a fresh new thing. Um, and I guess, you know, the first time that anybody ever said LOL to me and laugh out loud, like that's kind of a funny thing. And then we do that. But like even our dear friends in, in the Slack chat room that, that we're in, I like, I just, I can't believe how many people use LOL 
just as a matter of course. And I, I assume it's a meta ironic way, but like, I just, I can't, I just don't see myself saying those things. And when I see people using them, I'm trying to figure out like what level of irony they're trying to address that at so I can figure out which part it's, of it's supposed to be funny or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a very odd way to talk. And I think speaking in that kind of shorthand, especially when you're speaking to other people, uh, it seems odd to me. And it seems like if you, for myself, I would not want to allow myself to do that too much. Uh, because it's not only insipid, like pretty soon you're, I'm not sure what that shortcut is meant to really represent. Are you really laughing? Like what, what are you doing at this point? I don't know. I think you're, over, think you're overthinking it for a couple of reasons. One, the typical reason of like that, you know, the kids these days and the things they do and how ridiculous they are and how the way you did it when you're you were the same age. You're exaggerating. I didn't age. say you do that. That is, a, that is a huge through line uh, through that entire show. But anyway, let's God. just set that aside. The other aspect of that I think will help you come to terms with this um, and I, is sort of how I've come to understand this phenomenon. Because I think in practice, I am I'm more like you. I tend not to use these things that much either. And when I do use them or anything like that, I'm definitely going for the uh, ironic angle. But that's that's neither here nor there. The main thing I think you need to understand about these is they are no different than the uh, sort of macros or little encapsulated phrasings that we do in in-person communication. When you're talking in person or, you know, over the phone or anything, all the other times of communication that you're more comfortable and familiar with, there exist these exact same things. I'm calling them macros. That's probably the wrong term, but basically bundled up connections of words. Oh, like snippets. That if, you, if, that if you were to examine them, don't quite make enough sense that you have heard a million times during your whole life and that there is eventually a shared understanding of the uh, deeper meaning and context of this little bundle of words. Uh, and tech speak with lol and haha and raffle and all that and the smileys and everything all that is is a new vocabulary for the exact same things and the discomfort is because if you're not familiar with that vocabulary all, our entire life we've all been saying these things and having these expressions we have ones within our family we have ones within a larger group we have east coast ones and west coast ones uh just within a given language you have the expressions that we use and you know everyone has their personal uh vocabulary of of uh sayings and expressions and idioms and sentence structures that we when we communicate in person or, or through audio we come to accept these not at literal face value but as representative of you know of the the feeling that we've all agreed upon that this is expressing or when merlin says this he means that he says this a lot when he's like x therefore when i hear it i know it's that right so all of the text speak stuff they're just a different version of those things and I, I get a read for people where if like you were talking with somebody over the course of many years, I know when they say lol, I know this is what they mean because they've said it to me a million times in lots of different contexts. And eventually you start to do pattern matching and like how, you know, what do they mean when they say lol? Uh, what, what do they mean when they say raffle, raffle copters <laughs> or whatever, when they use three exclamation points, what do they mean versus when they use one? Mm -hmm. And there is some shared understanding as people interact with each other, but just like in person, when someone makes a groaning noise or sighs or, uh, you know, uses a particular expression or calls somebody a particular word or declares something to be whatever, how you kind of get, get a feeling you know what they mean. And so I'm not looking for like, are you really laughing out? Like that's just totally besides the point. All you have to be asking, like allow yourself to accept the, the pattern matching sort of skills of your brain to figure out 
what does this person when they mean that? What does this group of people mean when they say this? When these people all say this in this channel, what are they conveying with that stuff? And don't get hung up on the fact that the vocabulary is new and the fact that it can't possibly be literal and the fact that people that, that have the meta thread of making fun of it. It's kind of but it's, like it's making not, fun it's of it. But it's not new. It's not new. It's incredibly stale. Well, no, but it's like the word like, which has been around for our entire life. And that we there was a big phase where you could say like, ironically, and make fun of Valley Girls, right? Right. But we all still say like, and we understand its place in our in our language and vocabulary. Someone from 300 years ago would have no idea why the hell we keep saying like, and it would seem crazy. And they would be like, is it really similar to? Yeah, is everything similar to something yeah. else? Why are you saying like? And that's exactly what you're doing to law. You're making a straw man. I I understand why you're straight making a straw man. But I mean, if you I I'm I think part of what I'm. Hmm. Part of what I'm trying, I'm not, I'm not kicking my slippers at people. There are other things that I am more than happy to kick my slippers about. I don't know what that about. means. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a lol, a, you know, it's a raffle thing. I um, know, but I don't know that one at all. Um, the, I think, hmm, well, I mean, I haven't really thought about this until I saw it in the Google Doc, but, you know, I think um, on just barely the second level of communication, we're looking for connection. So, uh secondarily we want to connect to people primarily communication is there uh to communicate to get information back and forth so like if if you and i are having some kind of back and forth and we're texting like we kind of know each other and so yeah we've got we've got ways that we talk with each other i mean everybody's got ways they talk there's ways that a family talks to each other that they would not talk to other people you have code switching for all these different kinds of contexts, environments hierarchies you know whatever that is it's just that well i guess i partly feel like there, if, I guess there's a connection in using these kinds of words because uh, it, it conveys a certain kind of meaning, but it also convert, conveys a certain kind of, uh, not stature, but like in this case, like it's, oh, I'm very, I'm, I'm very relaxed. I say things like lol. Like it's all, it's all casual, dude. And so that, that becomes a way of like trying to portray yourself as this certain kind of like a laid back character. My problem is like when I'm speaking to strangers and that's the way they're speaking to me, I don't think they're primarily seeking to communicate they're going straight to the like like taking their shoes off and going into this real comfortable way of talking that does not convey information well and i think it's 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 more like this like i'll use the example one of the examples you give that i'm recalling now is the exclamation point which you were sort of uh uh sort of feeling shame for using yourself when you're like in text communication putting an exclamation point and things like seriously i've had lots of people ask me if i'm angry because i use periods yeah, I know. Well, the, the period thing I'll set aside for a second, but the exclamation point, like, okay, we'll see you in five minutes, and it's an exclamation point. Right. The role of the exclamation point, which is better than just concentrating on low or whatever, the role of the exclamation point, that is, and when you see people doing things in like Slack channels or whatever and using excessive exclamation points and smileys, that is the text version of the, uh, the sort of posture, mannerism, and tone of voice you take with strangers on the street or people in it who are serving you your food or whatever where you want to be friendly but it's not a real friendliness it is more like it's like manners it's like showing that you're being cordial that you appreciate they're there you are and i i this is one thing i can match up one-to-one with the thing that happens in the real world like when you're talking with someone on the phone like ordering food or doing like where you're trying to be polite and well-mannered and reasonably enthusiastic and you're doing that because you don't know this person so if you see someone that you just kind of have a vague uh you know tangential acquaintance this is like you know hey i got a whatever oh that's great exclamation point are they exclaiming that they're putting an exclamation point there to make you feel comfortable in the same way that if you met them in person they would make sure to be 
don't know if you want to say ingratiating or it's it's almost like saying thank you or sir. You're being um, uh, cordial. Yeah, I mean, you're being friendly. Like you, you mm-hmm. know, when you meet people for the first time and you have that first little bits of a conversation where both people are trying to put the other person at ease and and, yeah, and you and say show something like it's it's so nice to meet you, even if it's not actually that nice to meet them. You that's what right. you say to put someone at ease. Yes, and the, the exclamation point fills the same role. So do the smileys, where you don't maybe don't have the smiley when you're communicating back and forth to someone who you've known for a really long time because you don't feel the need to do that. But if you if you have someone that you're a vague acquaintance with, everything you say, you want to do it in a way that makes them feel that they understand that the subtext is, I am being friendly with you. I am not trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm trying to make you feel comfortable. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I am laughing at your stupid jokes, even if they're not real. You know what I mean? Like, it's, uh-huh. it's like, that's... And the way we have to do that in text form is with excessive exclamation points, with smileys, even with things like lol and ha ha ha, because you want to show the person, I acknowledge that you have made a joke. It may not have been the best joke in the world, but I don't want you to sit out there feeling like, oh God, I tried to make this joke in some in front of someone who I don't really quite know, and they're leaving me hanging. So someone who is empathetic to to your position in, in this relationship is going to put throw in the lol or the ha ha ha, and that is trying to make you feel like, you know, and maybe in person it would just be a smile. Or a chuckle or something like that, but they want to give you something. And all they can give, like, you're not going to make up a new bespoke sentence every time you want to make someone feel that way. You're going to have a little macro or a signifier. And if it's going to be a smiley or a lol or ha 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 or a raffle or whatever, that is the signifier for that, you know. Like, I feel like this in the tech speak, there is this usually a mapping to a real world thing that we all do and accept. And once you can start drawing that mapping for each person in each context, it stops looking like an affectation and or a crutch or a, an artificiality and just looks like exactly the same thing we do in these other contexts, only in this context, we have to do it this way because the other the normal avenues are close to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to pick like what you do. Like maybe you find, maybe you just have an aversion to lull. Like, I don't think I've ever done raffle... I don't think, have you ever seen me do a lol? I probably have done a lol in my life. Even if I'm actually laughing out I mean, loud, I, I don't I, think I, I do a lol. I understand all of what you're saying, and I think it all it sounds mostly true, um, but um, I just wish we could use more words for things we want to say. I, I, I guess you're saying, like, you want, it, it seems more literate to you to, to write a sentence or to write a, a three-word phrase. I right? mean, it seems less illiterate, yeah. Right, but... Uh, like I said, I, don't, if, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying thin- that makes me Victor Hugo. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, like, I understand what you're saying. This, this, this totally makes sense. There are all kinds of different ways that people talk to each other in different situations. There's certain words that pilots use when talking to other pilots. There are things that lawyers use when talking to other lawyers. And there are the ways that just normal Americans talk to each other and the language evolves. So on the one hand, I mean, I don't want to be totally pegged as going like, oh, change scares Merlin. That's not true. What I'm trying to say is I want to be circumspect about allowing allowing something that's been around for a couple of years to suddenly become the way we're expected to talk to strangers. When we've had words for a really long time that we need, that is, a, that is, these are muscles we need to keep exercising, I think. I think we need to learn how to use our words, just like a three-year-old would. And then I also, I don't like the idea that, I, I, I will push back on the idea that the only way I can make other people feel comfortable 
on their their little weird insecure end of a text message is to like have this ejaculatory spooge of exclamation points in order to make them understand no really thank you like that inflation does not go anywhere good so what do we do we add more emojis like there's nothing wrong with any of that if that's how you like to talk i I, once again it's like sports i I don't like the pressure on me to be like whoa 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 slow your roll dude like why are you using periods like what do you think this is writing you know i i I don't want to lose that muscle like i'm not ready to give that up just because other people are confused that I, I haven't given them an image to explain how I feel right now. But you do that in real life all the time and you have no problem with it. You give them the exclamation, the, the real life equivalent of the exclamation point all the time. Like I've seen, I've seen you do it. That is how, that is how we all act with but strangers. John, this, this is real life. It's just, it's just that, I mean, that it, you know it is I mean, real like life. in person. I do know what you mean, but I think, I think the, the distinctions, here's what I will say for myself is like, I'm trying to be more open to a lot of things. It doesn't mean I'm going to like them, but I want to try to understand more things before I'm critical of those things. But like I have, I've been fortunate in that like I was, I grew up at a time where I was expected to learn how to type words and defend what I just said. And, you know, uh, I'm not saying I'm great at that, but like I, I just, when I am greeted, when I get an email from somebody who I've never met before and it's all just like, and it's about business and it's full of exclamation points and effusive thank yous and more thank yous. It's like, it's so weird and needy to me. And I understand everything about what you're saying, but like, where does, where does that go? Like, this is probably a slippery slope, but like, where does that go? Like, how, what are we, what are we going to do? We're just going to be like grunting at each other and like drawing on a chalkboard to try and make emotions, make, make face for you to understand how feel it's well, like, it's, it's not like everyone who speaks that way is going to be like, there's a real life equivalent of that person who's using two exclamation points too. It's someone who in real life is so ingratiating that your defense mechanisms come up and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like if you, you start to feel like you are being too friendly to me. And, uh, you know, again, no text. This is like in person. We've all met those people. There is a text equivalent of that. There is an email equivalent of that. There's an IM equivalent of that. Like all of those people who are communicating are are they're communicating with the same things. Like the medium is not the message here. The message is the message. And the medium is just how the how it comes across. So like, yeah, I've gotten those emails as well. But I feel like that is exactly the equivalent of the annoyingly friendly waiter. You know? Yeah, I guess so. But I also I um. I'm disappointed in myself when when I, uh, I I think I'm disappointed in myself when I when I find myself saying that I'm sorry for something that I'm not actually sorry about. When I apologize for something I'm not actually apologetic about, that makes me feel dishonest. And when I say thank you to someone about for the same thing three times in one email because I think it's the only way to make them comfortable that I'm their friend. Uh, that's on me, but I don't feel good about that. But I, I don't you do that. Don't you do that in person too, though, all the time. Sometimes. Really good to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, it can blah, blah, be. Blah, blah. It you, can like, be. But like, here's the thing: if you're someone who is constantly apologizing for things, even if it's something that you're not apologetic about, um, that makes an actual apology much less meaningful. And if you ever met somebody, maybe, and I think you're you're kind of like this. I have not ever heard you say thank you to people that many times. Not that you're an ungrateful person, but you yourself do not use these words lightly. I don't hear you apologizing for things a lot, like a lot of people do. I don't hear you saying thank you <laughs> for things a lot. No, I don't. I don't. No, no. And I don't think it's because you're... Um, I just think that is powder that you keep dry. So one time, when you and your I family... Say, I say THX to people a lot over I am. <laughs> what, I, as, that... I, as I am instant messaging, is that what that means? Yeah. <laughs> Like a T- THX is a good standard one that I use, right? So I use that in I am conversations. Like, for example, someone in work, like uh, I ask them a question or whatever, 
I'm using it as a signifier that the conversation is over, that you have, I uh, had a request for some small piece of information that you provided or a pointer or whatever, you have given it to me. Um, but I want to acknowledge that you basically just did me a very tiny favor. It's not a favor that warrants a full-fledged thank you exclamation point, uh, or, or even just a thank you, but THX is, you know, uh, out of the few things that I use, THX and K are like sort of acknowledgements and conversation closers, which are meant to be non-effusive and fairly formal for like a professional setting or whatever, or even just uh, within people that you're familiar with, um, that's that's what I'm doing in that situation. But like, I feel like the number of times, all the things you've described, the experiences like saying thank you too many times or sorry when you don't mean it or whatever, I've done all those in person as much as I've done them online. Like, I don't draw a distinction between the two realms. I feel like I've all the things, all the things that you've described that are uncomfortable or that you want to get away from or whatever. Don't you feel like you've done those same mistakes in all formats of communication? I I do, but oh, if I make those kinds of errors because I just have a dumb personality and that's how I operate, <clears throat> that's one thing and bad on me. Um, I guess I'm having difficulty putting this well. I feel, uh, I feel a certain amount of pressure to do that as a matter of course. If there's anything that somebody did not completely understand and reply with a great jizz of exclamation points and excitement, I feel like I have to explain and apologize and say thank you. And you get into this kind of like weird bowing and scraping thing back and forth because you don't want anybody to think you're being a dick on the internet. And I, I, I do understand that because it's a really strange, like like very uh, foggy, opaque medium that we're dealing with, however we're communicating with each other. You do that in real life too, though. Which? Like everything you're describing, I feel like it is uh, the, the whole thing where you'll communicate with somebody and then feel like you have to... Uh, re-explain or apologize if it if it's not if abundantly clear that they have entirely grokked your meaning like you know i'm saying that but i don't want you to be offended but like i understand this and qualifiers or whatever right like yeah i mean i, I get what you're coming from in terms of this is another example of like that you, that you feel this pressure to act in a certain way and that like for example you use the periods people think you're mad like i use the periods if people think i'm mad they're either like it doesn't bother me much because I assume they'll eventually figure out that I'm not mad, or if they think I'm mad all the time, then so be it. But like sometimes I put the period. But I mean, in. like I feel like you're 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 a little bit like like a, an associate professor putting on a beetle wig to explain all this stuff to me, and like I understand all what you're saying to me, and I've I've heard all this for 20 years now. I understand what you're talking about, but I a it doesn't mean I have to like it, and b it doesn't mean I have to think that that's a great direction to be going. I, I don't. That's what I'm saying. I don't think it's a direction. I think it is just it's the same as it ever was. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. To learn more about Casper right now, please visit caspersleep.com diffs, that's D-I-F-F-S. Gang, this is real easy to understand. Casper offers an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. It's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. The best of two technologies come together for better nights and brighter days. Guys, I have been sleeping on a Casper mattress for months now, like over a year, and I love this thing to death. Yeah, I love the quality of the product. It's amazing. I love the sleep that I get from it. But you know what? Even all of these many, many, many months later, I am still pleasantly stunned at how easy this company is to deal with. It's a joy. Just how painless they have made the entire process. God help you if you have ever tried to navigate getting a new mattress in an actual, according to Hoyle, mattress store. It is the worst. It's a bewildering and very depressing process. I recommend avoiding that by going straight to Casper. With Casper, a surprisingly small box magically appears at your door, and you carry it up to your room where you sleep by yourself. You can do that. 
and you use this handy little dingus they give you to gently swipe open a bag full of awesome mattress. The mattress gently inhales. <gasps> and within minutes, you have everything you need for a good night's sleep. It's actually that easy, and it is actually that simple. Here's the crazy part. Casper also offers an equally simple risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on your new Casper mattress for 100 nights, and if improbably it's not to your liking, you can send it back. Free delivery, painless returns, and sleep. Glorious sleep. As I mentioned, the prices for these mattresses are crazy. $500 for a twin? What? $950 for a king? Go out and compare that to what you find in a retail store, and you will run screaming to your computer and typing in caspersleep.com slash diffs. On top of it all, that's right, Casper has a special offer. Just for listeners of Reconcilable Differences, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting caspersleep.com slash diffs and using the very special offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S, when you check out. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to Casper for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. So those kinds of like short conversations you're having in text that, uh, you know, are sometimes just a, a few little letters here and there. That's the equivalent of like the way you would talk around the cooler 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. Or just like I said, even, even today, there are equivalents in, uh, you know, it's like, how, how are people forced to communicate through what funnel must they communicate? Must they communicate? You know, it, previously we didn't have any funnels. We didn't have written word. It was just us in front of people. And maybe you could yell over long distances. Right. And then you've got the written word. And then it's like, well, we need a whole new set of rules because they can't even see the guy and we're separated by time. So we had to figure out something with that. Telephone was also a different set of, you know, telephone voice, you know, people who have telephone voice, everyone has telephone voice. Do you know guess, that voice? Yeah. Yeah, telephone voice is a came about because we were we, we had to communicate with each other in this new way where we couldn't see each other but we could hear each other but the audio quality was crappy so we all got telephone voice and telephone voice is a modified version of the voice that you would say when you went into the, to the general store and talked to the manager of the general store and how are you today or whatever and you know the whole hello and goodbye those pleasantries why the hell are they bracketing things on telephone calls it's it's a, ha- a holdover from the days when we had to greet and say goodbye as part of polite society when we have to talk to each other through text, we come up with a new set of conventions, but it doesn't matter. Like it's, it, it's all the same stuff. We're just trying to find a way to communicate the same information over the channel that we are forced to use. Um, and that's why I say, if you go forward 200 years, maybe there's some kind of weird VR thing where we're gesturing to each other with like lights that flash out of our things or doing something with our avatars that signifies something that is not quite the same as a real life thing and is not like text and it's not like emoji but it's a new it's all this the same information we're all trying to communicate to each other the same exact things in terms of social status deference uh politeness uh superiority authority uh submissiveness uh, apologies affection it doesn't matter what channel we're communicating that the things we're communicating are the same we're just doing the best we can with the thing that we're given. And I don't think, I mean, you could say like, oh, these mediums shape how we communicate in some ways. I think they do a little bit, but in the end, I think all we're ever trying to do is find find a way to take everything from every form of communication and find how do I express that in this form? Like, you know, with these time scales, with this permanence, with, uh, w- with this audience, with this knowledge about the recipients, with all this stuff. And it just seems like all the same stuff to me. I don't, I don't see mm. a distinction. And this is coming from someone who does not use. I never use you instead of Y-O-U. I don't use LOL. I don't use Raffle. I don't really use emoji that much. But I do use smileys like crazy. That's one of the things I did pick up on. Uh, because uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, you got, you don't use smileys that much. I used to use them all the time. I, I, tried, to, I tried to stop. I was just using them too much. 
I use them less now. Now I feel like I'm using them more consciously, but that's that's a learning process in terms of what kind of person do you want to present to the world? Do you want to present the person who is in telephone voice the whole time, who is talking to everybody like that? That's what Too Much Smiley stands for. And Too Much Smiley's eventually starts to be looking like Randall Flagg, where you're just smiling too much, or you know, or like a scary kind of, you don't want to, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, all I want to say on this is, is not, not to explain to you how like Smiley's and, and LOL works or whatever, but just that like, I don't think you have as much to fear from this phenomenon as as you seem to. I, I don't think the, the onus is on you to act in any particular way. And I think like everything is working sort of working itself out and working as designed and does not does not represent a fundamental change from when we were kids or, uh, you know, a, a step in a bad direction. I, I just I just see it as like circling the same drain i don't know that's a, a bummer analogy there, but we're, we're orbiting the same sun with all these different communication formats and we're really not making any uh significant progress in any one direction or the other we're just orbiting around and around and around hmm. yeah i guess so i don't know um i mean and for the people i think i think not using things like lol and stuff like that and being sort of you know I, I think both of us communicate this way and a lot of the, the people we talk with like not using as much of the text speak that in itself is a message you're trying to put yourself in the category of people who did not grow up with this and don't use it in the same way and we feel that not using it better expresses where we're coming from and who we are and what our echelon is or what our shared experiences are you know what I mean? don't you feel like that is also a signal that you're sending to people when you when you put the period on when you put the capital letters at the front of the thing when you spell everything out that's that's a signaling mechanism as well for for sort of not social echelon or whatever like a, even just generation i feel like that's a signal we're sending there and that's a perfectly fine thing to do. like none of these things are wrong um but like I, I i don't think there's anything i wouldn't say there's anything that 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 i do that that doesn't communicate so like there's no way to do anything in text communication that doesn't doesn't convey something about yourself whether you're conscious of it or not and so that's why I spend not so much time like beating myself up about using too many smileys back in the day or using too many exclamation points now or whatever. Um, because it's, you know, I'm just, I just want to let that stuff, dis- it's kind of like letting the control interface in a video game disappear. I want the control interface to disappear and I just want to be communicating and you just work to make that as natural as possible, I think. Yeah. 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 I don't I know. Sh- I sh- I should go through your IMs and see. What have you said lately? Let's see. Look at your IMs. Do you have any exclamation points or smileys? Well, of course you, you got, do, John. That's the entire f-ing point. It's no, that, you, got, you got periods on sentences. You got capital letters. Doing okay, good so here. here's here. I mean, I think if if one wants to become a uh, a really jovial populist, you can make the stupidest and shittiest thing in the world sound like a normal thing because that, that's always been that way. Okay, great. Like you can always, I think anybody, anybody can come up with an argument about how everything is everything because it's always been that way and it's always been, okay, that's fine. Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be better at? Do, do you want to be better at communicating? Do you want your kids to be better at communicating? Do you, what do you want your office environment to be like? That's the thing is, is that I, I want to not move backwards. And I, it's, I, I really, I, I, I kind of resent being made to sound like some kind of like, the the dean of uh, of the of the frat house campus in some eighties movie because that's really not what I'm <laughs> saying. I mean, I'm not. I, I could I could give a fig how other people want to talk to each other, but I once again I have to tell you I am pushing back against the feeling I have that like this this um, 
I don't know. I think it's when you when you get to a point where there's an entire keyboard for making pictures, I think it's time to just take a little step back and ask yourself where you want to be heading. So if you want to be heading in the direction where you have a more and more tricked out way of making a picture of food, the thing that you use to communicate with somebody, that that's great. There's cave walls in France where that was a pretty hot thing a few hundred years ago. Now, for myself, because I am fancy, like that's not the direction I want to move. I want to I want to not find myself stepping further and further away from a world where the way that we choose to put words together is meaningful. What we, what we have in and what we leave out um, says something about who we are and what we believe. And like, uh, it, you know, if, if I'm shucking and jiving with my friends, I'm like, no, I don't expect that to be a novel. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't like feeling like the way to not seem like a pretentious person is, is to speak is to basically conduct myself like some kind of a dullard with a, with a set of eight colored crayons to try and communicate the range of human emotion to people. And so I, I take your thing about like, well, there's this medium, this is how we talk to each other. Like, yeah, that just makes sense. And that, that all, that all like totally makes sense. But like when you do get to the point where people are saying words like lol and raffle to each other, like, I don't know how you can, how one can see that and go, oh, that's pretty much the way things have always been. Well, I, mean, you, I, like, I, I think it is because the law is a stand in for the little chuckle that you would get in person. That chuckle communicates a lot. Like when someone, I mean, you say something that someone doesn't actually think is that funny, but they think it's funny enough. You don't see the difference between saying the word law and actually laughing? No, like giving giving the little polite chuckle. No, because they can't hear you do the little polite chuckle. Like in well, person. I, I'm doomed. When, I'm doomed then. I, it, I, in, uh, that's what I'm saying. Like in, in person, when you, when you make the, the, the little joke or say something kind of funny. It's not the most funny thing that I've ever heard in the world. They're not, it's not side-splitting laughter or whatever, but they do, like, they don't choose to chuckle. It's happened spontaneously. You know what I mean? Like, it's involuntary because you made a funny and they right. give you the little chuckle, right? If you made that funny when you were hanging out with someone in person and they somehow suppressed that involuntary chuckle, you would feel differently about making that funny. Uh, right. You know, that, that little joke, right? What they're trying to do in the text thing is, like, you couldn't hear my chuckle. You couldn't see my smile. You couldn't see the change in my posture. It lets me know that I got your joke and thought it was funny and I gave you the little look that, you know, or whatever. You can't see any of that. And so they're trying to, con- you know, make that connection in a medium that doesn't allow you to get that. And so they have the silly stand-in, which is perhaps regrettable and has been made fun of and has, you know, and has gone around the irony loop six or seven times. And not everybody uses it. I don't use it. But that when people use it, I get that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to give me the equivalent of the thing I would have gotten in person had I made that same joke, as opposed to like just nothing coming back. Um, and is nothing coming back make someone uncomfortable? Some people maybe, some people not. Like that's that's the gap in communication where you, you feel like people are going to think you're pretentious if you don't use them. Well, I certainly don't think you're pretentious if you don't use them. It depends on who you're talking to. Maybe if you talk to a teenager, they would you would seem alien to them. I don't know if you would seem pretentious. Maybe they would think you're judging them because they use too many smiles and exclamation points, right? Like that gap in communication that exists, delete computers that exists when adults talk to teenagers all the time. Right. So, you know, I just, I don't, what I don't say, I don't know. I don't see a categorical change in all this. I, I see all the same gaps between understanding of how we communicate with each other and who says what and who uses what words and, and, how weird it is for old people to talk to young people and how how different friends talk different, like you said, and the families talk amongst each other and everything like that. This is just one more channel for all those differences to reveal themselves. Um, and in this particular channel, I don't feel any additional pressure than I do in any of the other channels. Like when I talk to my, you know, my eight-year-old kids, eight-year-old friends, you know what it's like talking to an eight-year-old. 
you you talk to an eight-year-old differently than you talk to a new adult that you met differently than you talk to the guy who you're ordering pizza from i don't know if you do eight-year-old voice or whatever but if you tried having meaningful communication with an eight-year-old who is not your child it's really hard because you don't know how their little brains work and you're, you're trying and you're like probing and you're looking and sometimes they don't know the words you use and sometimes you don't know the words they use and you don't know their mannerisms especially because they haven't all developed them yet um that's what it can feel like if you entered into a group of people who communicate in text in a way that you don't it can be like you know not to say that there are a bunch of eight-year-olds but there's that gap in communication there's a lack of shared culture around things and i just i don't know i'm i'm much more except even though like i think practically speaking if i we scroll through my i don't i am you any different than i, I am anyone else and our IMs look basically the same we are both old farts who use sentences with capital letters and periods we're not spell old farts john words. we're adults well, you know, we're writing like adults have written for millennia. You you think so, but then go back and look at some of the correspondence in the 1800s. We are not like writing like that at all. Like they were just, yeah. Um, I mean, but we you have get to own... choose that. You get to choose how you're going to do that, and that's just that's the choice that I've made, and I I don't feel bad about it. You shouldn't. I don't think anyone is making you feel. Well, bad I'm not about sure. It, but, I'm not sure what I the think, performative like, like, aspect of this. Like, what do you think I should be doing or thinking differently? Um, I, I think, uh, that you should not think of people who communicate in text differently than you, any, any, uh, differently than you think of how the eight-year-olds talk to each other. That okay. it is a, that we'll a different, a different way that you're, that like, like I said, when I ever try to talk to little kids, it's just so hard you don't even know, like I have words and you have words. We're speaking the same language. You know what I do, John? I talk, words. I talk pretty much exactly the way I would talk to anybody else. I mean, I, if there's if they have a question, they'll ask. That's one strategy. You're right. That is one strategy. Well, what am I going to do? Am I get on my knees and act like you know creep, creepy Uncle no, Licky no, trying no. to speak their lingo? They need to learn from us that this is this is how people communicate with each other. I know. I know that that is one potential strategy for talking to kids, and, and in fact, it's the one I use a lot of the time too. Um, but sometimes that is not the most effective way to convey a concept to a child. Not because you're using words they don't understand, but because they're not used to speaking that way or their brain doesn't quite work that way or they need it framed in a different way and you have to figure out what it is like i don't know maybe, maybe the, the kid example is is uh is not a good one but i i've i don't have anxiety about about these different kinds of communication and i think even though you think we're communicating like adults like people always have i think we're communicating like people did on usenet in 1992 because that's when we formed our how do you communicate over text uh sort of you know rhythms and everything and mm. I think if someone who, uh, you know, if we if you transferred us back a hundred years in time and we started communicating, we're like, what? This is how adults talk and regular like, it, in before the days of the in, the internet and Usenet essentially and web forums and LiveJournal massively shaped I think how both of us communicate in text. And we just think of now, oh, this is exactly how people did correspondence. No, it's not. That's not how they wrote letters at all. I feel like we are are. Uh, forms of text communication are heavily, at least mine is, I don't know how to speak for you, but I think we can't put in the same kind of error, heavily shaped by the places where I first learned to communicate with other people through text. And for me, that's Usenet, bulletin boards, and eventually web forums. Um, and, you know, you don't change it that much, even as the times evolve. Like, that's maybe that's why I don't use emoji as much as everyone else, because it's not, I'm not a nat- native emoji user. But I definitely think both of us looking at these IM conversations communicate in ways that we wouldn't had we not had those formative experiences on the early internet yeah makes sense i'll try to uh, i'll try to be more open-minded yeah and just I, I think what you should try to do is 
uh, don't worry about how other people see you with your text messages. Don't feel any pressure to be any different than you are going to be because you are who you are, and I think people understand that. Okay. I'll do that. Free to be you and me. Yep. It's all right to cry. Okay. Get Crying the gets the sad, sad out, out, of, out you. of you. Yeah. <laughs> why, why did our parents make us listen to that record? Why? Oh, that's a good record. That's a good record. <laughs> was it a good record? Because it seemed... Oh, the things that stick in your it was head. was a message that had to get out. Did it, I, did it help you cry more openly? Or did it make you... I don't know. It's, Learned about babies. Yeah. Oh, God. I, why, I, you, I feel like that entire album is in my head, note for note, word for word, but it is just waiting to be triggered. Like, you just mentioning that, I heard the little song with the little baby voice and everything. What do right? I but, know? I'm just born. I'm a baby. Yes. No, that, I'd, see, it's just don't say any more about it. We had it on 8-track, so the whole I heard, thing it, I heard it flooding back. over you know, we had, and over and over. We had vinyl. I don't think we ever even had an 8-track player in our house. Hmm. It's the worst. I'm done uh, telling you that you're old. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, think you, I think you conflate John and me. I, you're you're probably right. I have to. I, have to I think you those. you have very very strong opinions in particular to what John Roderick says and thinks and kind of says and kind of thinks. And uh, I guess maybe because I'm not because you don't actively resist it. stopping him or yep, disagreeing yep. him. And I, I mean, I do I agree with him on, on some things and, and others not. And I, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. You, you are, you're able to join in because whether, even if you're not in a hundred percent, it would not be a fun you, show. If I just argued with John, that would be, that would not be a fun show. You, I feel like you can, you can empathize. Even if you're not a hundred percent on board, you're like, yes, I too have had that feeling. Like you, it's relatable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. E- even if it's not like I would not espouse that, but I, I see where you're coming from. And you can also offer uh, corroborating evidence and similar stories from your life that makes it seem like you may agree more than you actually do. And really, you're just saying, I see where you're coming from. Here's another example. Yeah, it's a uh, you know, it's part of the artifice, you know, the uh, the medium. Well, I'll work on this. He's the, one with the uh, real problem. We can both agree. Right. Well, we can all agree <laughs> on cheese. Next topic. I do not know what this topic is, but I'm very interested in it. And uh, I want to know what you want. What is this about? So I went to Disney uh, this summer. I've mentioned it on ATP. We've talked about it a little bit here as well. And on ATP, for whatever reason, we never quite got around to it. I saved that topic in case we ever needed to have something to fill time. But apparently in ATP, that is not a problem for us. We always have crap <laughs> to talk about. Um, and really, it's probably more appropriate to this show. And I wanted to talk about my Disney vacation and about you've talked about Disney on, on other podcasts. I, I, I would you, love you that. Would, I would love to hear that. You and Gruber talked about Disney, I think, on one of your early talk show episodes. And you, you The Magic Kingdom the has past. a very special place in my heart. I mean, theme parks in general, uh, I have had a very strong connection with. So I would I would love to hear uh, what went on with that. Yeah, and rather than just go through, like, here's what I did on my vacation type of thing. <laughs> you got um, slides? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have, oh, God, I should count how many pictures I have. I have a lot of pictures. Did you um, watch The Simpsons last night? I did not. I'm not still watching that. Where Pat, Patty and Selma, you know, they famously have their their terrible, boring slideshows, and uh, and Patty and Selma go like, "Oh, we're gonna watch all the slides from when we were kids," and they come out with this little tiny box, and Homer's like, Shoo, and they pull he pull, they pull it out, and it's a thumb drive, five terabytes of photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I think I sometimes I think about that. Like I think about how many photos I have of my childhood, how I can remember specific ones, and like, what are my kids gonna have? They're gonna have. Here you go, kids. 300,000 photos of each of you. Enjoy. about the photos, we have, um, I have three photo albums from, one of them's really old, 
Uh, one of them's from like, you know, the early 70s. And the other two my mom and I put together about 1976, 77, 78. And that's it. That's pretty much what I've got. That's I've got those three photo albums. So basically any one of those photo albums has about the same number of photos, at least what I would take in a month. And some very much what I would take, not including bursts, what I would take in a week in many cases. But, you know, but the process of like sitting there and families like family night of like sitting there, going through all the photos, figure what you're going to keep. And those we have, are they're terrible. Some of them are just awful. But like that's that's what we've got. Yeah, I, we're going on with a tangent here, but I th- it's it's a fruitful tangent, I think, because sometimes I I dwell on things, things from my use that are, as far as I'm aware, just completely lost because no one ever took a picture of them. Yeah. Uh, one of the ones I think I took a picture of with like my disc camera at some point. It was my room, my childhood room, where I covered the I walls. I totally, I took photos of my room all the time. Of the walls and the ceiling and like how everything was arranged on my shelves and how the things on my shelves evolved over the year. I didn't record that. Neither did my parents. Maybe I had one or two pictures that I took on my desk camera that are long gone. Um, and I'm like, how did I not, like in the modern era, that would never happen because I would be like obsessively taking pictures on my like iPod Touch or iPhone of every iteration of my room as it changed over the years. I have zero pictures of it. Uh, trips that I went on with with friends uh, over the summers, uh, school trips, no pictures of them, nothing like it, it's the type of thing like what pictures do you have of your your the kids that you went to elementary school with? I've got the yearbook and that's it. Right. No one took pictures of anybody because no one had any like I've got my parents pictures, which are mostly like me and my parents and my grandparents and my uncles at birthday parties thanksgiving and christmas and all those pictures essentially look the same and you do people look like people get older but there's nothing from you know i I, this maybe it's fine you know again people survive before there's photography but there's tight groupings around blowing out uh birthday candles opening christmas presents and then, like, I think of, like, a lot of, maybe some vacation pictures. Yeah, posing and in front a, of things. And then a lot of group shots of, of, like, a line of people standing in front of something. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by MailRoute. You can learn more about MailRoute right now by visiting mailroute.net slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. Gang, email is so important to our daily lives. Everyone gets a ton of it. Our inboxes get full of important things, but there's also a lot of junk and spam, too. So to help sort this problem out, we need to have people we can trust do the right thing to filter our email for us. And so who would you want to help sort your email? Well, how about email nerds who do nothing but email? Well, that that is our friends at MailRoute. Imagine a world with no spam, viruses, or bounced email. Imagine opening your email and seeing only the legitimate email that you want and need to receive. This is what you'll get with MailRoute. They have been the most reliable team in email protection since 1997. My goodness. If you have your own domain, regardless of who hosts it, MailRoute can help. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoute simply receives your email, sorts it, and delivers only the clean email to your mail server. Clean email. They save you money in hardware, bandwidth, and other precious resources. It is easy to set up. And it's trusted by large universities and corporations, even ACM, the world's largest and oldest governing body for computer sciences, uses MailRoute for their email protection. As a desktop user, the interface is simple and effective. And if you're an email admin or an IT pro, they have built all of their tools with you in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. MailRoute supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging. Outbound Relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your email. So to remove email spam from your life for good, go to mailroute.net slash diffs 
for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Our thanks to MailRoute for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I don't know why we got derailed onto that. I guess I was thinking of The Simpsons. But, uh, but also, you know, another reason I mention it, I can't believe how many of the photos that have made it out of my early to mid-childhood are of me with, like, Mickey Mouse or something. Like, me with a celebrity. Like, those are the pictures that made it. Is, I think I might have sent you one before, me waiting in line to get an autograph from Mickey Mouse at the Magic Kingdom. They were sending you that one? I have not seen it. or I don't think I've seen it. Cause I, is Mickey Mouse in the picture or do I just see a line? No, no, it's, 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 it's the titular mouse. Yeah. All right. So, well, I, anyway, I was just dwelling on this because I feel like there's there's whole sections of my youth that I barely remember that I would love to see pictures of that pictures just don't exist from. And it's kind of a shame. And my yeah. kids won't have that problem because every part of their I guess only every part of their life that I'm present for is being documented, which is still something. But someday they'll look back and they don't have pictures of their school trips either. Right. My kids are probably going to they have iPod touches now. They could be taking photos with them if their schools would let them. I don't know what the right electronic policy is. Anyway, setting, that aside, setting that aside. Yeah. Disney. There's a lot of things I can talk about and complain about uh, Disney on, uh, but the one thing I I came away with thinking of, and it's related to your very long ago discussion with John Gruber on the talk show about Disney, uh, and I wrote in the notes here, is the sustainability of Disney World. And you said, you mean like, uh, you know, eco-greenness or like sustainable like energy and stuff? And no, I do not mean that. Hmm. What I mean for sustainability is the, the thing that you talked about with John the kind of attention to detail at Disney World in terms of uh, the, the the place looking a certain way and being clean, the, the, uh, the checking of all the sight lines, the blending of music from one place to the other, the consistency of the theme. The way the ground changes, the buildings subtly changing between yeah. areas. Yeah. The, the hiding of the mechanical systems that surely must exist behind everything. The fact that the employees are all whatever they call them, cast members. Mm-hmm. Um you never and, see you never see a pirate in Tomorrowland, right? And that, that you don't see them going to and from their things. That, uh, that the illusion is maintained that it is the friendliest place on earth. That everybody uh, is, you know, in character and there to serve you. And you know they charge you a tremendous amount of money for all this, but it's the whole like we will make this seamless illusion of this place where everything goes right and everybody has fun. And no matter how many tantrums your kid is having, everyone, all the people there will treat you as a, as an honored guest. And the environment will be even like when we were there, they had some construction, even the construction screens are themed and uh, made to blend in with everything. They don't want it to look like, well, there's Disney World and then there's just a bunch of construction over here. Right. They don't they don't want that. Like and the reason I think about the sustainability and also I had watched the uh, what was it? The American Experience thing on Walt Disney. Did you see that recently? No, I haven't. It's worth watching. It's like a two parter. Um, okay. It's not it's not Ken Burns level, but it's still pretty good. Oh, I love those shows. Yeah. And and, uh, and I'd. I haven't seen that much about Walt Disney. I've seen I've seen a lot of stuff about Epcot. Epcot. I haven't seen his life story. It's 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 worth uh, watching two episodes of. Um, I feel like I haven't seen much stuff about Walt Disney that's not a Disney product. Like yeah. there used to be. Uh, we're talking about Magic Kingdom, right? Uh, Is well, that where you the, went? Walt Disney, the man. No, but I mean, like where? Well, I'm sorry, where you went? The park you went to? Did you, you went to like uh, Orlando, right? Yes, I went to Orlando. Used to be <clears throat> when you walked in through the gates. Uh, you'd walk in. I don't know what's there now. I don't know if anything's even there anymore. But there used to be right on Main Street. As Main Street is starting over on the right, um, it was called the Walt Disney Story. And there was like a, a theater and like a little miniature museum. 
But like the first thing you saw when you go in the park is like basically after you'd gotten into the park proper, past the lockers and all that. I don't know if they're even still there anymore. Um, yeah, you could just go in, and there was this whole like a movie you could watch about Walt Disney. But I feel like almost everything I know about Walt Disney has come from the Walt Disney companies. Yeah, and you got the statue of him holding Mickey's hand in front of the castle. I mean, like that you're not getting the, the the true picture of him there, obviously. Um, but a lot of the, a lot the, of real, the real monster. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, it's the American experience thing is more of a personal story and a biography. You can learn some things about it. But the thing that we all know about Disney and, and the parks and everything is the the insistence on all the things that we just said, like make sure the trash cans are themed for the park that they're in. Make sure everything is always clean. Everyone stays in character. You know, like I said, you don't see the people, you don't see people with uh, the mascots with their with their uh, head off, you know, because it's really hot, right? You don't see people coming and going. You don't see the mechanical systems. Everything is just, the, the illusion is maintained. And watching some of the stuff, like watching the building of Epcot and these old movies from the, the 60s and, and 70s and everything. And then I, I had a couple of moments when I was there in Epcot and looking and you ever see those like when they do architectural drawings back before they had computers some architect would say I have this grand vision for what this modern city is going to look like and they would draw like the train platform with like the little stick people on them like they look like little sort of just crayons yeah. with heads or whatever it's architectural drawings of uh, of how this is going to look and the architectural drawings never quite look like what it looks like in real life because they're stylized and everything looks a little bit more flank frank well, they're, they're very they're mainly to get the idea of a concept across it's not to execute on it's to like yeah. get an idea across right and and all the little people are all just little idealized matchsticks and it just everything looks impossibly futuristic and sleek and beautiful and clean and they usually don't draw in the things that you wouldn't want to see like they don't draw in like the the garbage cans or the ugly vehicles everything is just you know nice and the parts that aren't the parts that aren't part of the plan are whitewashed out so you don't see the neighboring buildings that you're not designing now they just kind of fade out into the background and everything right yeah there are vistas on i think getting off the monorail at epcot or whatever when people were walking down those platforms there are vistas in epcot that looked like i had a, a flash in a moment like that is a real life version of those architectural drawings like it is everything is idealized there is nothing it is on a grand scale with these little people walking around it is a ridiculous thing that no one would ever make in any real city planning the only reason it's here is because this is a theme park and someone actually built it like they you know, I just think of how much concrete they had to use for these platforms, how excessive it is for the task that it's serving and how they've eliminated all of the background stuff around this. I'm like, wow, you know, they, they've really built this this illusion here. Um, so I, I, I get that and I see the force of will that must, you know, you watch these things, the force of will that must have been necessary to make this happen. And, to have, money, it, and, and to have it keep hewing to that vision, even at the final points of implementation. That's, right. that's the devil like, in the details. Is one, oh, something, something, make the garbage cans look good. I get it, I get it. No, 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 no. Really, this has to be like a futuristic garbage can. Like, give me three concepts for that. Yeah, and it's like with the home renovation stuff that we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> How difficult <laughs> it is to actually make that happen because there is not, there, you know, Disney had to essentially create a cottage industry of people who work for Disney and do Disney work in the way that Disney insists the work is done. And that doesn't, you know, like I can't even get work done in my home in the way that I would like it to be done and I have I must less, less demanding than Disney you know never mind the whole creative aspect of it and all that <laughs> other, you know what I mean um, right I do right and so what I mean for sustainability is how do you keep that up over the how many years how old is Orlando Disney World now like 50? 71 or 72 so right. almost almost 50 45 how, how like do you maintain that because I have to tell you like having I went there when I was a kid and I grew up watching all of these things about how wonderful it is and I know a lot about it and and um you know and when I was there I look at it and I uh, you know 
I saw all the greatness, but I also saw the places where it is just it has been impossible over these 70 odd years to maintain things to the standard of the original vision. Like, is it even possible to get a place where you never see one of the teenage ride operators talking to another another person operating the same ride about things not related to Disney? And you say, right, like that they're just, you know, talking about regular people things or whatever, like that that the garbage cans are actually generic in a lot of places that they've standardized that some things are a little bit dirtier and a little bit more rundown than they used to because they've been there for 70 years and they can't redo every single ride every year um that the the little the little cracks and seams and is it possible to even make something like disney and maintain it to the standard uh the standard that the original creator wanted it to be. I'm not going like, to say the standard it was because they talk about it in the American Experience thing when they opened Disneyland in California, how messed up everything was. Right. Like, they, well, they, but also you're talking. I think the the challenge, the challenging part here, like you could say, yeah, well, Pixar maybe, but we're talking about like a physical, a place where the laws of physics and gravity and weather <laughs> and taste. You know, that these are all, I mean, it, keeping something physical like that is a very different matter from like updating a movie or a book. And, and it's not even just the entropy of physics, you know, like of being worn down, but like the fact that people die, the generations turn over, the generations of people, like it's not even the same people running it. Slowly they're being replaced. The employees are constantly being replaced. We're on the, you know, 700th set of employees that, that operate these things. And you're hoping right. that they've communicated down the chain through all those 70 years, this culture about how it is to be in Disney. And, you know, that's that's what they do so amazingly well. It's how they are able to be as good as they are. But, but, but it is so, I feel like that is, that is almost impossible to correctly convey and communicate that culture across that many generations of people when the people in charge are long dead and their children are long dead and it's just sort of it's like a game of telephone that it necessarily has to slowly crumble um well, especially because well like okay a couple of things i mean maybe i'm just parroting things I've, I've heard about disney before but i mean if you this these sound like the same thing but i think they're kind of different things if, if you take like what well, let's start from first principles. Like, and I know, I know this is standard Disney propaganda, but Walt Disney was trying to, Walt Disney was looking at the world of like fun fairs and carnivals and like how kind of dirty and not family friendly those kinds of things were. And it's really, you know, I, the funny part is I, I've grown up around Disney, so I'm used to Disney World, but in just half a generation before I came along, it was a pretty seedy affair. Like, you know, it was real sketchy to go to a place like that. You'd have the, you know, the crooked uh, games, the kind of things you'd see at like a county fair, maybe, I guess. So that was part of what he was reacting to. But here's the, here's the, the part, this sounds like the same thing, but I think it's not. The trick here is for Walt Disney and, in fairness, his team to come up with an, like, an, an immersive, like, creative vision for this kind of a park. And then, second, minimize the number of ways that you could be taken out of that illusion. And they sound like the same thing, but I think they're not. Because on the one hand, the first part is, well, you know, gosh, how long will the Alice in Wonderland story be relevant? Well, we'll have to roll the dice with that. We're going to make this teacup ride, right? There's things like that. But the second part of it is, like, the second part, in some ways, like, the first part, there's a lot of physical play and a lot of work. But this, this, the, the second part is, like, yeah, you're right. Over time, how do we keep the teenagers from talking to each other? Like, how do we, how does this stay relevant in a way that it, this doesn't feel even like an old idea of what fun is? that that would take you out of it. I mean, there was a time, supposedly, where, like, they wouldn't let people with beards into the park. Like, they wanted to create this. And, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's true, but I'd always heard it. Heard him say that he just, he thought there were, 
let's how can I put this? I've heard it said that Walt Disney thought there was a little too much diversity at Disneyland. He wanted something. Oh yeah, no, no black people at Epcot. No, is is well, is that true? I uh, mean, I don't know. Like, you, I, if you watch the American Experience thing, the pa- picture they paint of him is that the uh, what the explanation they give for why he was like that about Disney World, wanting everything to be perfect and just so, is that it, it was like resting control of the one thing he could control as he lost control over over things in his actual real life, and so it's like, well. Real life has become messy and complicated, but I can recreate a simpler thing here. That's that's okay. the narrative they paint in this American experience thing. And you can see some, I mean, especially in terms of him dealing with labor, in terms of he didn't want his animators to unionize and how betrayed he, he felt having ascended to be a captain of industry and then having his workers say they would be treated unfairly and how it was just the ultimate betrayal and it just destroyed the dream he had of the naive dream of like we are all in this together <laughs> like as, yes. as if he's as if he's running like a family butcher shop and can't believe how uppity the meat cutters are becoming yeah like aren't we all in this together yeah i make all the money and get all the fame but like no we're all pals here right it's my, like, my, my signature is literally on everything that we do <laughs> yeah you know unionize right and so that betrayal like destroyed the the dream of camaraderie the, the you know the fantastical dream of camaraderie that could not possibly take place when he you know he wanted to have his cake and eat it too and so uh as a retreat uh go create create these artificial worlds where he could make things just so uh and have other people experience his artificial worlds and buy into the same thing that he was you know anyway that's that's the american experience thing that they're trying to give who knows how accurate it is but you can regardless of the you know the 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 uh less charitable notions that that you know a person of his error and his age necessarily must embed in this creation it is still essentially an attempt to create a controlled environment that doesn't suffer from all of the things that we know the people who have to staff it and maintain it suffer from in real life, right? So that's why, yeah. you know, you don't want to see the, the Mickey with his mask off taking a smoke break. You're just never going to see that because that destroys the illusion. How do you convey to the people who wear the Mickey outfits the sacred the, the sacred duty that they are undertaking, the seriousness of the, you know, you are not just it's not the same as putting on a bear outfit outside the car dealership and waving at cars that they pass. How can I communicate to you, a person who will be in this Mickey outfit, how incredibly different this is than being in front of the car dealership? I, I think I, I think I, I think I get what you're saying. Um, and so I, if I get the upshot of your argument, do you think is it just because he and his is it because he's gone? What is it that's made that more difficult today than in 1973? Well, like I said, I think there's a, a bunch of factors. One is just, it's got to be just the plain game of telephone. The people die and the people who replace them perhaps have a not as uh, good understanding of it or aren't as motivated or like you need something driving this. Um, and or, or you need, you need, you need somebody. I, I'm, gosh, it's so hard not to bring up Steve Jobs for some oh, reason. I'm, I'm going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I mean, what you're looking for here is somebody who seems, um, uh, what's the word? I want to choose this word carefully. Uh, like you're, li- you you want almost need somebody who cannot be persuaded by the kinds of ar- arguments about what's doable. Or you know, Pixar for that example. Like think about like working for Brad Bird on The Incredibles. I mean, that must have been a very trying experience. I get the feeling that guy's got a very strong personality. People who've worked on it say like he was asking us to pushing us us to do stuff that people had never done in this way before. 
like Steve Jobs, and look, you got the Incredibles out of that. But you do need somebody standing over you in some ways to keep that same passion about like, I don't, it doesn't matter to me who's in that Mickey Mouse outfit. What matters to me is that I, I don't even think about there being somebody in that Mickey Mouse outfit. How do I make you care about this almost as much as I do? Yeah. And the other aspect, like for the, for these figurehead type thing is one of the easiest ways to get people on board with that is to have them, to have everybody essentially want to please you because they look up to you. They admire you. You want to, you want to please this person. You want to please Walt Disney. Even if you've never met him, you know what he, you know that he exists. You know what he would want you to do in the Mickey suit because it's been drilled into your head by his million subordinates and you want to do something to please him. So that, so one aspect that was just, just the passage of time, because 70 years is a long time and something's got to get lost in translation and there can be ups and downs or whatever. The second aspect is the easiest one to explain. And that's where I'm going to bring Apple into it. Um, it's that, like the the analogy I'm going to draw is to the Apple Store. Remember what the Apple Stores were like when they were new, when they would pay the Apple, you know, the, the Genius Bar geniuses. They would pay them like double a typical teacher's salary to be at the Genius Bar. Do you remember those days? No. Like it was, <laughs> it was older people at the Genius Bar. They were paid massively more. They were so incredibly overqualified for these positions they were taking. Everything in the stores was Walt Disney level, spared no expense, right? In a, such a short period of time that the Apple stores have existed, the cruel nature of economics has done what it does, which is now the Genius Star is staffed by teenagers who are paid way, way less. Maybe they know just as much. Maybe they're trained to know just as much. But it is a different, you know, they're not being paid as much. So you can't get those, you know, adults with uh, worldly experience as easily as you could before just because they start paying less. The stores uh, have turned over a few times in terms of materials. But there are parts of the stores that are dingy because they get massive amounts of traffic and just the cruel economics of profit and loss start to assert themselves. And that can't help but happen to Disney World over 70 odd years that, you know, if if there's, there's not unlimited money, you have to turn a profit. You can bring your prices up, but like you have to choose where you spend it. That's why I think a lot of, you know, for example, the the uniformity of garbage cans in Disneyland that didn't used to exist is now started to exist a little bit more than it used to because it's an economic thing. Like, how can you get someone to take their job inside the Mickey uh, outfit as seriously as you want? You can get them to take it really seriously if you pay them a hundred grand a year. No one is, is making a hundred grand a year being Mickey, right? No one probably ever was. But as you bring those wages down, how little can we pay them? How much can we get? How much can we glide by on the honor of actually working for Apple or Disney or whatever? Can we pay them less and less and less? All right, well, we still get employees, but now it turns out it's a bunch of kids in high school or kids just out of college. Is that bad? Well, no, they do the job just as well and we'll train them and so on and so forth. Like, it can't help but, like, capitalism and all that inevitably is is incredible driving force driving you to cut a corner here, save a little bit of money there, uh, keep wages down here. Like, that's going to have an effect on the long term unless you have, because that is a massive force. Like, everyone wants you to make money. It's a public company. You need to make money in this stuff. Part of that, you know, you hope they're in the same Apple mindset of like the way we make money is by being perfect, you know, where you got to spend money to make money. And if we skimp on that, it's just long term. It's a bad idea or whatever. But that is such a huge force. And when I, I look at the sustainability of Disney World, it's like, how long can the people fighting the good fight at Disney World continue to fight the good fight? I think it, this they have shown amazing resilience because if i think of the disney world that i saw when i was a kid and the disney world that i saw today and the one i see in the movies from the 60s and 70s the 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 way they've maintained 
I mean, it's a downward slope, but it's a really gentle slope. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I see the cracks now, but that's what I think about. I'm like, is it just is it just not impossible to sustain that? Like, if I just take the little slider from like Tomorrowland or whatever and scrub forward 700 years, is Disneyland does it, does it, is just like a pile of rubble, or is it possible to sustain this? Like, is it perpetually sustainable? Or and setting aside the thing of like, you know, teacups and Alice in Wonderland and getting the Song of the South the hell out of that park and all that other stuff, you know, like allowing for that turnover. Is it possible to have an institution where you create this experience for people and that you maintain this illusion and that it doesn't eventually ever so slowly over hundreds of years turn into the same exact thing that Disney World was created as a reaction against? I mean, maybe it becomes irrelevant. Maybe we all nuke ourselves and it doesn't matter. But um that's what I thought about going through the park is, you know, is, is this sustainable? And every time I saw something that was like out of character, we're like, is, is this like another crack or is this the exact same thing that happened in the 60 and the 60s? Like, I mean, I said, it's a slight downward slope. Maybe it's not, maybe it's totally level because again, talking, looking at Disneyland in California, nothing worked when it opened and it was all a big mess and you just got to do what you got to do. And it's kind of idealizing the past to imagine it was ever as, as beautiful as it was supposed to be. Or even like taking, you know, Jones beach and uh, all the Robert Moses parks where he would have people going around in white pants and a white shirt. And when someone spat onto the boardwalk, they would immediately clean it off with a cloth behind them as they walked down the boardwalk. Wow. Like, like that, that type of, you know, that I can tell you that did not last at Jones beach. Like, you know, Robert right, Moses right. made these, you should read the power broker. It's a great book. Anyway. I know. I, you, every time I go back and listen to that episode, it makes me want to read it. It's a big book, but, but anyway, like that was, that was, you know, I'm trying to look at timescales. The Apple stores, I feel like over the course of whatever it's been, I don't even want to know. Please don't tell me if it's more than 10 years. Um, the Apple stores have been around, um, have gone downhill, not in a terrible way, but you can clearly see it. The, the Robert Moses uh, state parks and everything, I think they probably lasted up until maybe I was born. By the time I was going there as a kid, I, you know, the things I read about in the book, I don't recognize as any of the parks that I've been going to my whole life because it's just it wasn't on a government budget. It's not possible to sustain that level of, you know, finesse and beauty and like Disneyfication because, you know, taxes and government just don't allow for that. Disney World as a private enterprise is the thing I've seen in the in the entire world that has maintained this this level of uh, beauty and excellence and sustained uh, multi-generational adherence to a theme while adjusting for the times, while, you know, allowing everybody to go there and not being like, maybe you should trim your beard, you dirty hippie. Like, you right, know, right. Uh, while while evolving with the time, it is the thing that I've seen that that has most impressed me with this ability to sustain, but me being the person I am, when I go there, all I can see is, is the places where it's falling apart a little bit and go, is this is this sustainable? I don't know. Is, maybe that's not the feeling you're supposed to have at Disney World. But that's the feeling I had. One of well, the feelings I, mean, I had. Well, I mean, it's yeah, you know, a couple things. One thing I remember hearing in Florida when I was a kid, and I heard this numerous times. I don't have any. I just did some quick googling and can't can't find like any specifics of this. But something that was pretty close to like conventional wisdom in the 1970s and 80s was that uh, the people who worked at Disney World, um, like. I think they made pretty close to minimum wage, mostly, because there was always a line of people wanting to work there, and it was not a particularly fun place to work. It was very demanding. Um, it's very hot. Know, hot, like in you know, there's all all like the weird stuff of getting into the park. And there's a lot of overhead involved, and a lot of like you know, certainly it seems to me you could have made similar money from being a waiter probably, um, to what you would make there. But you were working at Disney World, and that meant a lot to people. Uh, the part about this I'm thinking about, uh, I hate to just uh, ask the big question, what's the, what's the cost now? 
<laughs> I don't even know. Um, I, I, my wife took care of all the money. It's a lot of money. I don't think it's like, I think it's still two digits per person per day, but maybe it's close pushing into everything is a package. You know, you drive buy a package that includes all this stuff. So I don't know how you'd break it down. Um, it's a lot of money. Starting at, uh, okay, so I'm on the page for the Magic Kingdom, starting at $105 for a one-day ticket. Yeah, but like, that's you know. That's more, like, ex- that's more than I expected. That's why I feel like you, no one pays that because who goes for a one-day ticket? You're buying a package for a week and you're assuming you get a discount. But I mean, like, and, that's the, let's take that as a starting point because I, I remember when, when, I feel like I remember when Disney World got to be, it was, it hovered, I feel like in my head, and I'll, I'll look this up, but I feel like it hovered just below 20 bucks. For a pretty long time. And at one point, I remember it jumped. It was at the point, it was at the point when you didn't need the tickets anymore, like for the rides. And they would give you this little, not little, it's kind of a big, like almost the size of a greeting card on a string. And that was like you would wear that around the park, and that's how they knew you you paid or whatever. It was that simple. But um I remember at one point it went to like 40 bucks, and we were everybody was like, wow, only only Walt Disney World, only the Magic Kingdom could get away with charging $40 in the 19, I want to say 80s to do this. So, I mean, I mean, God, there's so many angles to this. Just for the pricing, like the, the absolute values of the price, like, uh, you know, obviously in terms of the sustainability, as they charge more, sustainability starts to make more sense. It's like, well, if you're going to maintain this level of excellence, uh, you know, you're going to need to charge a huge amount of money because we see all the forces that are acting to suck that money away. Yeah, yeah. And so like, I, I guess I, I'm not trying to make any kind of a super direct argument because there's also this value to the whole platform. And, you know, another Disney property at this point, we're seeing this with Marvel, like where, you know, who would have guessed, definitely 10 years ago, but even five years ago, who would have guessed the extent to which the importance of the Marvel Cinematic Universe would, would have such a huge impact on what's happening in the books? I mean, and we don't have to go into that, but let's suffice to say a lot has happened where you can tell that that's pretty important now is like whatever is going to be happening in the MCU is going to have a big effect on what is or isn't happening with the books. But, you know, there's something to that platform. But the funny thing is, if you think about Disney, think about Disneyland, which came up in 52, maybe. 57, I don't know. At some point in the mid, whatever. So Disneyland starts. That was even still, they were still putting out some okay, good, you know, animations at that time. You get into the 60s and you start getting into that kind of long slog of all the kind of Dean Jones Jones movies and stuff like that. They had Wonderful World of Disney or whatever it was called on TV, but it was already a platform. But it's funny because if you think about it, the, the, the heyday of when the Magic Kingdom really became the Magic Kingdom was, I think, arguably at the nadir of the of the Disney cinema world, right? I yeah, mean, they they were using that it, t, uh, the American Experience thing is basically they were using that TV deal to fund the creation of Disney World because they right? weren't they weren't making enough money from their movies, and this was basically like easy money. It's like okay, I figure which network, whichever network was the most desperate. I guess it was ABC. It was like we will give you practically a blank check to make this fairly cheap to produce television. Put your put the stamp of Disney on it. And you could funnel that money into the swampland you're buying in like, Florida. Like I'm sitting here trying to think, like right now, apart from Robin Hood, I'm trying to think of what Disney, you know, cartoons, movies from the '70s I've shown my kid or like would even want to watch again. I'm sure there's others, but you know, it was a lot of stuff like like Blackbeard's Ghost and stuff. These kind of like these, but that was that was also, I mean, arguably that was maybe you know the Disney Magic Kingdom heyday. Well, that's the thing. Like in my memory, as 
it all compresses up. But then another thing that struck me watching this television program at Walt Disney is just the huge gap of time between Snow White and when like Disneyland happened. Like it was practically like people could be dead who worked on Snow yes, White by the time. Tw- 20 years, yeah. It, and it seems like it's all like, oh, the old classic Disney days. They made all these great movies and they made these theme parks. Like, no, they made these great movies. And then there was a long, like you said, a long period of time where, you know, the, the computer wore tennis shoes or whatever the hell was going on there. Oh my God, John. These are, I, I, the Barefoot Executive, the Million Dollar <laughs> Duck, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, not, not my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see some of the other ones here you got. Oh, World's Greatest Athlete with the young Kurt Russell. I remember that. You got Robin Hood in 73. And by the way, those live action ones, again, they were cheap to make. Um, and it was the type yeah, of thing, yeah. taking advantage of the branding that you could put a Walt Disney stamp. All, the best one they talked about was the nature documentaries. Remember the nature documentaries where they'd make up these narratives with uh, totally unrelated footage of, oh, absolutely. of, of little yeah. baby otters? Those made a mint because they were super cheap to film. You didn't have to pay any actors. You sent one film crew up to Alaska for six weeks. You cut it together and it played like gangbusters on television. But I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to think, I'm putting this very poorly, but so the, the platform thing is, is super interesting, though, because it isn't like, or the brand, if you want to use that term, like in the true sense of the word, the Disney brand is, is a very big thing that encompasses many different things. And you could be as realistic slash cynical as to just look at it as a whole collection of stuff that makes money. But it's also, if you've, if you've been in a Disney store, which we have one here in San Francisco, like you really start to understand how all these pieces really feed into each other. And I guess, you know, I guess the difference, I'm, what I'm saying is that the difference between Disneyland in the mid to late 50s to Disney World and those properties today is there's more and more of a blurring between what the product is. Like, I think you could even argue into the 50s, there's Mickey Mouse cartoons plus other stuff. And now today, like, what what is it that Disney makes? Like, yeah, you know, the, I'm the not park. asking that cynically, but like, what do you think of as the primary yeah. product of the Disney corporations today? And I'm, I'm not sure I could tell you one thing that I think of as the overriding cultural artifact of Disney today. I think I can from being at Disney World. Like uh, there is the there is a little bit of the sort of holding company conglomerate angle going on here where it's like once you get a few steps removed, like, yeah, yeah, Disney owns Star Wars, but Star Wars is Star Wars, right? And they will incorporate it and they will do all these things. That I did one of the things I one of the few pictures I sort of Instagrammed or whatever from Disney, by the way, was it was a you know, in one of the innumerable places where you can buy little toys for kids inside Disney World. They had a Cars set. Did you see this one? I, I might have tweeted it. Um, a set of, you know, little die-cast Cars from Cars. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget which characters they were. But anyway, like, I think maybe one of them was Ramon. It was like three Cars. And it was Ramon as Han Solo and Carbonite. <laughs> so wow. the Cars, which are themselves already cars that, cars that are personified in a Pixar movie. Then those Cars reimagined as Star Wars characters. And one of them the car reimagined as the inanimate carbonite box that contained one of the Star Wars characters. It was like if you had to make an Onion article with like a, a, a crazy mashup of what would happen once Pixar and Star Wars are both owned by Disney, a world, a store in Disney World where you have Cars characters posing as inanimate objects in Star Wars movies. Very, very confusing and very, you know, very corporate synergistic, but very strange. But anyway, uh, getting back to what I think the product is, of Disney as a corporation, setting aside all these little things that they've acquired and pulled on and setting aside all the classic Disney and Mickey Mouse and all that stuff that is really not relevant anymore. Being at Disney World makes me think that the product of this company and the reason they are able, have been able to sustain as well as they could is the 
the more politically correct or the, 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 the version of this vision with all the bad racism and classism and everything else removed from it, the idea that, uh, you know, the Disney is a welcoming place where things will go well and everyone will be friendly to you. And even though it's an illusion, if we make the illusion convincing enough, it's the same type of thing of like, well, if you force yourself to smile, you feel a little bit happier, right? Like the whole, you know, connection. If they make this illusion convincing enough, we're dumb enough to be convinced by it. It is essentially a place where you can go to feel good. And the the reason it still works is because it has evolved. So when you go to Disney World today, you will see all the accommodations for uh, people who have mobility problems or, or are disabled. Um, you can see how all the best staff and most of the staff treat everyone with respect and kindness and are never condescending and are never seemingly flustered or angry and are always helpful and stewing in that environment even though we know it's artificial and these people may just be getting paid minimum wage and don't really care that they're working for disney anymore because it's not as big a deal as it was in the heyday of walt disney and he was walking through the park and they're not trying to please walt disney because they don't even know who the hell he is or even if he was a person right the illusion is still maintained enough that sitting in that environment makes you feel better, makes you feel better about yourself, makes you feel better about the world, makes you even feel better about your screaming kid who's having a tantrum because the line to see Snow White is too long, right? Mm-hmm. That has incredible value. The ability to do that, and obviously it doesn't have to be at Disney World. They do it with, they're trying to do it with everything they do. It's not like, oh, throw back to a simpler time when men ruled the world and white men smoked cigars. No, that's not what it is. It is the modern version of that. It is the attempt to make the the sort of you know inclusive modern environment where where you, the rat race doesn't exist where where kindness is the order of the day and who doesn't want to be in that type of environment and even though it's an illusion i feel like this is this is a a net societal good as long as you know as long as they do continue to evolve and and reflect and be what they are because there are precious few things in the modern world that exists for that purpose in a non-cynical way. And everything Disney is trying to do with the core Disney properties and as they evolve and as they change or whatever, I think ties into that, ties into that, that whole, that whole ethos that this is a valuable thing you can do for people, making people feel this way through, through sheer force of will and effort in constructing this amazing artificial world. I mean, again, like they talk about this in the American experience thing. It could be said that this artificiality, like this is the way the real world should be. And we shouldn't make this artificial world where it's all fake because that's like that in itself is a cynical type of thing. But I feel, I still think it is, it is generally an, uh, an unqualified good, both motivation wise and because you can never get the thing in real life. And it's kind of like, you know, having a spa or like having a place where you can go briefly where mm-hmm. things are different, even though it's not real life to make you feel better. And I was just amazed by how well even the the Disney World with the cracks manages to do that for all the thousands and thousands of people that go there every year. Yeah. Well, hmm, uh, I'm not going to say this, but uh, but uh, imagine spa in air quotes. Uh, that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, you could think about, about it as being pampered, right? I'm avoiding talking about prostitution here, but like, but a place, <laughs> but but what? Disney World is not like that. Well, it, it is in the sense that, or for that matter, going to TGI Fridays and having your waiter skip B 
be uh, be really theoretically into you. Yeah, but, then, that, but that I think is on like you're you're right. Like that is along the same continuum, but there's a discontinuity in the middle there. And DJI Fridays is clearly on one side of it where it's not. Okay, close well then enough, how, how about you know? how about a, a nice restaurant with very like a, a place with great food and a very well trained staff that's very attentive. And the phrase that, I, that keeps coming to mind for me is like you feel taken care of. Right. This is kind of going back to our travel discussion from uh, last time. You know, it's the opposite of that terrible feeling when you're traveling and you feel like you're not being taken care of. You really feel like you you understand that you've you've paid money to be in this place. And you know what? Yeah, may, maybe every person who's you know uh, selling pretzels there, maybe they're not actually your best friend, but like you're both okay with this exchange of uh, of, of kindness. And uh, you you want to have fun. You want to be in a good mood, and everybody there is is there to to help you with that. And I think that is something that they're that they're very good at. And with building on this platform of I guess what you might call mostly uh, mostly unharmful family entertainment that feels safe, and you feel like I say you feel taken care of. Yeah, I think you feel taken care of less than you would in actually in a nice hotel or a nice restaurant because this is the economics at work. Like, I, I actually expected that it, it would be more like you, what, you know, rich people get when they go to a hotel or fly first class than it was because it just is not, that is the part that isn't like for the amount of money we pay, we're simply not paying enough to get treated no, like there, you do. But, but you don't have the seams that yeah, you yeah. get in well, other places. The, the different, it's a great contrast with uh, Universal Studios, which we also went to, which is, in theory, trying to do a similar thing, right? Like the Harry Potter stuff, it's a theme park. Everybody's dressed up as Harry Potter people. They're all in character. Isn't that exactly the same as Disney? And comparing the two back to back, it's not like one was way worse than the other or anything, but it's, it's like a subtle difference. And I, I say one of the subtle differences is that, yeah, everybody in the Harry Potter world was, you know, the same thing. You didn't see people out of costume. Everything was kept neat and like, you know, they've learned a lot from Disney, but the people who were there running the rides in Harry Potter World were just people running rides. Like, they were no okay. different than the people running rides at Six Flags, which is not to say they were bad or rude or anything, but mm-hmm. they were just people doing a job in a way that the Disney people were clearly t- trained to be less like that. Like, there is, again, there's a line where, like, and I guess it changes for every person. Are you still buying into this, or how, are, are, have you now crossed over into the cynical side? So TGI Fridays is a perfect example because it's like nobody buys into that. I think you know nobody. Maybe they did once, but nobody buys into it anymore. So now it's just kind of like annoyance to everybody, right? Uh, Universal is close. You're 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 enchanted by the illusion, but it's you're never you never even briefly lose sight of the fact that you're in a theme park with a bunch of employees whose job it is to uh, to run the rides and empty the garbage cans and do all this other stuff. And like, there's a little bit you know the illusion isn't quite maintained and i think a big part of the illusion in disney world is all the other people there the the expressions on their faces the experiences that they're getting from things like the environment that we just already talked about in the beginning like the way the little sets and buildings are done and you know the, the way the streets are designed and just like there, this it's still top tier stuff. The new rides, the old rides, everything. Like I'm always amazed at how, with the exception of things like maybe the, uh, it's a small world and stuff, which are definitely dated. I'm amazed at things like like the, the big Disney castle. Like there is not, you know, there's nothing you can say about that now that say like that Disney castle is is old or dated or crappy or they can make a better one right now. Like go ahead, try to be in that park in front of that statue with little hold, you know, the statue of Walt Disney holding classic Mickey's hand in front of the giant cat, like. You can't, there's no resisting that. There's no mm-hmm. saying this is just something from the 60s and it's like, it, it's a baby toy and today we get better stuff. Where is the better stuff, right? It stands as a monument to 
this this amazing achievement that is still that still works because people haven't changed that much and it's, it's you know it's kind of like like the pyramids or whatever even though it's totally artificial and everything at least it's not a tomb for a dead king or whatever um i don't know i i feel like the overall net experience of disney world like the sort of environment and the sort of fog and haze that you're in and the beauty of the architecture and design and the fact that you know really smart people spent a long time thinking about this and it was their life's work and they made this amazing thing and that people have been able to sustain it to mm-hmm. a passable degree over 70 years is is a phenomenon and i probably the reason i was thinking about the sustainability is like that i didn't want to believe this was ever going to completely deteriorate whether it has gone down that gentle slope from where it used to be or whether it's actually level i'm just like you know is can can we not hold back the tide on this or is it just like inevitable that we just won't be able to sustain this no matter how many times we return things over no matter how many times we rebuild and restructure and replace until there's not a single brick left of the original single fake brick left of the original magic kingdom castle will it still like can we can we maintain this hundreds of years into the future or is this just like one more flash in the pan is going to crumble and someone else is going to have to do something similar um well yeah the the, the platform part one reason i'm bringing that out is i'm, I'm dying to ask you about something uh for a couple reasons um, so when I, when I think about the platform stuff, what I'm talking about is my goodness, just think about the complexity, like start out with like, like running a given single Walmart, like how, how much complexity is involved in like where that Walmart is, you know, when these deliveries come in, how often we need to stock these certain things, like for something like 20 years now, they've had incredibly high, high tech stuff happening as far as being able to do just in time, you know, uh, deliveries, knowing what stuff to put on the end cap when based on seasonality and relationships. So, I mean, I've got to ask you about the, uh, what is it? The, is it a, what's, what's the dingus they gave you? Like a, is it like a wristband? The, the magic band, right? Yeah. I'm dying to know about this because like, Everything I've read about that thing, it sounds amazing. And I guess I'm wondering if the future, to some extent, comes out of... You know, like when you go to a casino, I know you love going to casinos, and you get your your like you get your card, and you get like points and benefits, and you use it. But they're also gleaning a huge amount of information about how you're using the casino, which on the one hand t- tells them very much something about you, but like very much tells you about the trends and how people are using the cons- the casino. It seems like, can you imagine the data that they must be getting out of the usage of those things? And what that must be able to tell them in terms of intelligence, combined with what they get about you know box office returns, which plush is selling well in Phoenix right now. There must be amazing data sets that they can put together to figure out what they think is going to be a hit, what they should spend more on, and so forth. Yeah, like it's kind of it reminds me of the the sci-fi movies that I would watch as a kid where in the future world if some if some person from the the past or you know whatever the, the present of the time goes into the future world and lands there it's like oh take this medallion or this necklace or whatever and now as you walk through the house the doors will open for you and it will keep track of where you are and what you're doing like it's the, it's the future world type of stuff that we envisioned only here's the real version of it and the real version it's it's replacing 17 different things that were more annoying paper tickets another difference from the universal having to have paper passes with little barcodes on them that you put around your neck in the lanyard that get scanned that feels incredibly barbaric and intrusive after use to the magic band which is you know can't you just can can you give somebody a a quick explanation of what it is and what it does yeah okay so uh when you if you were i'm gonna give an example by saying what all the things it replaces if you go on vacation to a theme park um you have a lot of things that are involved you have your hotel key to get in and out of your hotel room you have the thing that shows that you paid to get into the park. If the park has any kind of 
uh, a line skipping type thing where you pay a little bit of extra money to go in on a line, you have that. If you make a reservation at a restaurant, you have to tell them your name. If you want to charge something to your room, you have to tell them your room number. All these different bits and pieces that represent how you identify yourself and how you show that you paid for the things that you're going to get and how you pay for the things that you want to get. You have to have your wallet with you and, and your all, credit it's card. All silo- it's all completely siloed. Yes, yeah, so you, you got to pay for stuff in the gift shop. So you got to take out your credit card. That means you have to have your wallet with you and all this other stuff, all right? Disney has taken all of those things that I just described and put them into essentially what looks like a Fitbit type wristband, a rubber wristband, one for each member of your family, which by the way, you get to pick the color of, you get to customize the character for, you can buy flair for in the thing, like it's, you know, they've thought of everything. Wow. Um, and once you put this thing around your wrist, it is the key to the, your hotel room. It is how you set, how you indicate that you've shown up for your reservation. It's how you confirm that you, that you are the person who has reserved it. When you come in someplace and scan it, they know who you are. They know what your name is. They know where you're staying. If you want to charge something to your room, like you do not have to carry anything with you. You just have this wristband with you. The well, supposedly time. They, they'll even know stuff like, oh, is it your kid's birthday? Yeah, no, but, they have all the information they have about you. And, and, you know, it just like, and it makes so much sense from a modern uh, perspective, mostly because carrying crap around when you're on vacation is another reminder of the real world, you know, not the rat race, but the, the real world that we're trying to leave behind. Uh, the real world where you have to keep track of your keys and your hotel key. And imagine if you forgot your hotel key or it's missing and you can't get back in the thing or who dropped their wallet or, you know, your wallet was stolen. You don't need to have your wallet with you at all. You don't need to have a room key at all. You don't need to carry You can have enough trouble carrying all the, the crap for your kid and the sunscreen and all the other stuff. This is just one less thing you have to worry about. It's just on everybody's wrist, and there's one for every person. Um, and they have kiosks where you can, like, I have a fast pass for this ride, but I changed my mind about it. You can go up to the kiosk, put your little wrist thing on it. It knows who you are. You can change around the fast passes. Go right, Like, you don't even have to take out your smartphone to do it. They do have a smartphone app. Um, and it is fairly old technology, and it's a little bit creaky, uh, and it's not as magical as they have you think it is, but it's way better than scanning things. It is way better than having seven different things for everything. Um, and it also, like... You talked about the business intelligence type of things, like the data gathering. That is surely part of it. In fact, I would imagine they're getting more data than they know how to process because the the task of data mining that to get useful information, like that's a job for hundreds of people for decades, right? But if they needed to, if they needed to make some kind of a small change and they could, I mean, think about how much more intelligently you could make a change like, well, do we need to change the staffing on Space Mountain? Well, what are the most recent, most what are the most recent two things that the typical user has done before they go to Space Mountain. You can figure out all kinds of things, like where to put the gift shop. You know, we really could use more Dippin' Dots over here, whatever it is. There must be so many ways that, like like you say, it's probably overwhelming in the amount that they have, but I'll bet you there are queries they could put together that aren't just creepy, but could be actually incredibly useful at helping them just run the park better. Oh, they, they definitely are. And like, here, here's another uh, aspect that, you know, a thing that you can do with this the, that I don't even know what the real world equivalent would be. So, you uh, very frequently, amusement parks, they know they're going to have long lines. They have things for you to do or watch. Or, you know, activities during the line to entertain you, whether it's just like little videos or little characters, little vignettes or whatever. One of the things, I believe this is on, was on Space Mountain. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was on one of the other rides in, in the line part where I guess maybe it was the car ride thing uh, where you, um, you're you going to ride around on the Space car. Mountain really, from, in my mind, Space Mountain pioneered the way to take an impossibly long queue because part of the queue, I mean, the whole queue idea is brilliant to begin with because you can't really tell how long the line is. Yep. But to like, on the one hand, like, I'm not, I don't mean this to sound negative, but to disguise 
how long the queue is, but then also distract you by, even back in the 70s, having stuff to look at and do while you're waiting. Pirates of the Caribbean, I mean, just waiting in line for, for in, in the 80s for Pirates of the Caribbean was fun. It was all, you were already in the experience. Once you walked through that door, walked into the gate, you already felt like you were kind of on the ride. Yeah, and I think, I'm, I'm probably misremembering this, but I think it's the car... Uh, the test track thing in Epcot or whatever, they would have a little thing where you would design your own car and pick the color for it and the wheels and the engine or whatever. Um, and then you would do this by, you'd put your magic band on a thing that would know who you are and you would do a bunch of stuff on a touch screen. And then you'd go to another section of the line and you'd put your magic band again. And it would, then it would know, it would know you are the guy who made the car that looked like X back there. And you would have your car with you that would go with you on the ride. And, and, and as you go through the ride, it would show how your car did compared to other people's car. How did it know that you know that your your car was the red one made of this, but it knows because of the magic band. And without that, what would you be putting in your name or your room number? It can't do it based on time. It can't do it based on what number you are in line because this the line sorting is not like this is a, a an, something that would be much more difficult to do without the magic band. But when you have an easy single touch way to identify an individual person, a whole bunch of new doors open up to how you you know how you deal with things. And I think the biggest reason Disney probably loves the magic band is it's kind of you know getting back to the whole fancy restaurant and being taken care of yeah when you don't have to carry money you feel like a rich person and it makes you spend money like you want this kid boop yours you want this boop yours they do have the security code for the magic band for i don't know if it's purchases over a certain amount so sometimes you do have to edit a four-digit pin but still the the it's like the itunes store like if you reduce the friction to buying something if you Mm -hmm. don't actually have to take out your wallet and dig out your credit card or dig through your cash and you can just put your wrist on something it makes you it's like it's like thinking you know calories don't count after midnight you think well this this isn't real money it's just magic band like it just get you know it is real like it reduces friction to buying things and who wouldn't want that um and you know that's kind of a win-win because i don't want to be digging out money it makes me feel worse about buying a 50 dollar you know toy thing that the kids want when i don't barely even know that it's 50 dollar and it makes the same boop sound as everything else that i buy This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Andrew Carroll of NCH Tax and Wealth. You can learn more about Andrew right now by visiting cpaandrew.com slash relay. This is a simple ad about a difficult thing. Working for yourself and paying taxes can be a nightmare. Trying to understand how to get all the paperwork and the tax stuff in place is the last thing you want to have to deal with, especially when you're trying to just make the thing that you want to make. And it really is easy to pay way too much. Maybe you're a freelancer or you have dreams of being an independent content creator, or maybe you're just tired of trying to deal with all this tax nonsense, well, this message is for you. Andrew Carroll, CPA of NCH Tax and Wealth, is a big fan of all the great shows, and he's also Relay FM's accountant, so you know he's good people. He has a solution for you. He has written a new ebook called The Freelancer's Guide to Escaping Taxes. It's all about how to understand what you need to do to make sure you're being efficient and effective with how you deal with taxes, and getting things in place properly to avoid issues down the line. It will make sure you pay as little tax as possible. Andrew believes that business should be simple, so he's made this free guide for people who want to learn how to make their freelance tax life easier. In a nutshell, it breaks down how to simply and legally reduce your taxes with step-by-step instructions that anyone can follow. Andrew can also help with almost anything related to business, taxes, or investments. But if you're a freelancer, you need to really go grab this free guide right now by going to cpaandrew.com slash relay. And you can also follow Andrew as at cpaandrew on Twitter. 
Our thanks to Andrew Carroll for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Thank you for that. And because I, I read about that and I actually uh, I was at a conference where I met somebody who was able inside of Disney who was able to tell me about that. And it's, it sounds like they love it, too. The reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is that, you know, it's funny. We, th- we spend a lot of time thinking about like all the creepy tracking stuff that goes on on the Internet. And with the supposed purpose of giving you better ads or improving your experience. And I don't know. I think I don't think the evidence is there that often. I, I sound like a rube. I'm trying to be not cynical here. I don't think the evidence is really there for how that kind of tracking is making things better for us on the web. Um, but in this instance, I mean, when we talk about sustainability, this gets us straight back to sustainability as far as I'm concerned, which is like, you know, like you've seen with user testing. Don't ask users what they think. Watch what they do. And by watching what you do, I can learn a lot about how to make this a better thing for you. Yes, obviously, to sell more stuff, it's called a business. But on the other hand, we could actually make this something where there's all kinds of ways that we can improve this experience and learn what to do more and less of in a way that's not intrusive. You don't have to fill out a form. You don't have to go, you know, um, and do all these kind of overt things that take you out of that experience. And I guess I feel like I could see in like in five years, I could see that kind of data um, producing a much better experience at a Magic Kingdom type place. I don't know if that's going to make a better movie for Disney, but I mean, look at Netflix. Netflix, apparently, and you can speak to this probably better than I can, but supposedly Netflix has gotten extremely good at taking all that data that, you know, like your TiVo sends right now and be able to say, like, we are, have a pretty good idea, not just that this thing will be a hit in a 1972 sense, but like who this will be a hit for. Like, based on who made it through this pilot episode, what they're most likely to also watch. And that lets them actually then say, well, we feel better about putting this much budget out for this kind of show because we know these people will watch it. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, but I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really good thing. If you can watch what I do and give me more of what I actually like for the same price, that's a win. Yeah. The, the, uh, another aspect of the magic of Disney world related to this is that I think people are more comfortable with everything you just described with that type of like watching your behavior and figuring out how best to serve you. If it's already in an environment where people accept mostly uncynically that everyone's there to have a good time and mm-hmm. that every piece of information they're going to be using. Yeah. Maybe it's there to make you buy more junk for your kids. But, but like that, I think everyone at Disney buys into the idea, which I believe is true that Disney understands that they make more money, the happier they make people. Like it is, it is a symbiotic relationship where we have agreed, I'm going to pay you ungodly amounts of money. Your job is to make me happy and make my kids happy. And Disney's like, we also want to make you and your kids happy. We want you to have the most amazing time ever, because that means you'll come back and you'll give us more money next time. And it is fairly tightly knit bond there. And people are like, you know, you know, track where I go, where every one of my kids is at all times, what rides I go on, what fast passes I use, use, where I buy my meals. Like if they could track how much food you threw out in the garbage with the Magic Band, they would. Like what? who bought this but threw out half of it because the kids didn't like it? It happens like, in hotels, in a, in a good hotel, like at the Ritz. My, um, my first housemate in San Francisco was the food and beverage director for the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco. One of the nicest guys I've ever met. And I asked him, I was like, you know, I read that Tom Peters book. Like, is it really true what they say? He's like, oh, yeah. Like, they, they, they are noticing which pillow you threw on the floor, which one you kept. They're noticing which chocolate, you know, which, which cookie you ate, which ones you didn't. And they're writing down, like, which radio station you listen to. So when you go... I mean, I can't promise this happens at every Ritz you go to, but like, I don't think that's creepy. I, if I show up somewhere and it's on public radio instead of country, like that, 
that feels that's I, I can take that kind of creepiness because it's it's improving that experience, and it doesn't feel like you're. I mean, certainly they're trying to eke out whatever dollars they can, but they're doing it in a way that ends up being beneficial. Yeah, and it's a context that we accept. We accept the context of a hotel is there to serve you and the fancy ones serve you better and the, the amusement park or whatever. Like, if you just extrapolated these same things to the entire world, the problem becomes who is the one on the other end of that data? Because we're okay with Disney tracking where we go when we're in Disney World. We're okay with, with the Ritz tracking everything we do at the Ritz so the next time we stay at the Ritz we have a, an experience that we find. Because we understand the motive there. It's like... They, yes. they want to make us have a good time because they charge a huge amount of money and they want us to give more money the next time. Like, it, it, it's all nice. But once you go outside the context of a hotel or Disney World and you just say, great, imagine if the whole world was like that. Well, then who gets the data? The government? Well, that's, now, no. Well, 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 uh, that's where it's getting closer to the kind of thing that Walt Disney and, and team were trying to replace, which is that idea of, like, you're going to go into this big row of carnival games that no one has ever run like that's run by hucksters, you might get your wallet picked. You're certainly never going to win the giant plush. And that's what the web feels like sometimes. When you go somewhere and you're like, there are, there are strangers out there trying to make a nickel off of something I didn't realize I clicked on or something like that. Yeah, and the, those people doing the stuff for the advertising, the reason we don't see any benefit of it is that we're incidental. What they want to do is gather as much information as possible. And then they want to sell the, you know, we know that, you know, Ten, we we can give you a list of 10 million people who just bought, you know, an energy drink. And if you want to, like, they're just interested in selling us as demographics to advertisers. We're barely in the equation at all. Our only job is, like, as a side effect to lead our little data droppings. And then we're just totally out of the equation. It's like, given these data droppings, and I've got billions of them, I can sell this ad spot to you based on these people who I know who did this behavior that you want, and we'll put their ad in front of them. And... We, they don't care how we feel about that. They only care that there's someone is someone is willing to pay to get that in front of our face because of some droppings that we left. I don't no, know. It, if, seemed, it seems so obvious and so painfully obvious when you see it now. Like you know, like we watched. Uh, we erroneously erroneously thought the baseball game was on last night, so we flipped on the regular TV with the leaf over the air antenna, and like accidentally ended up watching 15 minutes of a Modern Family rerun. And like just the the commercials on there are just it's such a blunt instrument. I mean, down to like this episode of Modern Family is sponsored by Sleep Train, which is one of our local you know mattress racket companies, and so they show a scene from Modern Family that involves sleeping. Get it? Like this has been brought to you by, you know, it's like, ah, it's, it was, it's, it's so gross and so dumb and you see it, you see it coming a mile off and it's, it's almost like, you know, like a bad David Blaine trick, like a, a, a trick that a David Blaine style trick that somebody couldn't pull off. And you're like, yeah, you're totally a ma magician doing a trick and it's not funny. Yeah, as as we're pretty crap when we were kids too, but like th those TV ads like that is because they don't have any information. Once they get more information about it, then you get these super targeted ads that are just as bad or maybe even worse from our perspective. Like, you know, like I said, when I bought a lamp for the outside of my house, I just I could not escape lamp ads for six months, right? That happened to Matt Howie. He got nothing but like porch lamps. Happened to me with uh, Me Undies. I went and bought some underwear and then I saw Me Undies ads everywhere for like yeah. a month and it's like it like from a data mining perspective it's like suddenly you became super valuable to the people who want under to want to advertise underwear for for you know is it were you actually valuable to them i don't know like but the, the bottom line is you are incidental once you leave that data dropping they're like haha i can sell <laughs> this information to these guys <laughs> these guys dropping. will pay me money to do it and then you're like but don't they care that like especially for an outside light like i bought outside lights for my house because we got the outside of my house redone and i got new lights on the outside of my house how many more outside lights do they think i need 
I only have a certain number. I replace them all. I'm never going to buy new outside lights for this house unless someone knocks them off with a baseball bat. Showing right. me an ad for the next six months for outside light. Like, the people selling those lights, must they not know that lights are not like a periodic purchase? Well, Amazon, Amazon, it's one of the very few desperately ham-fisted things that still happens on Amazon to where it's a joke, where if you go in and buy an HDMI cable, first of all, it says, you know, a lot of people who buy this HDMI cable also buy these two other things, and it'll be something HDMI-related and another HDMI cable. And you're like, really? Frequently, people come in and buy this many HDMI cables? And then you say, well, like, show me some more things. Uh, People who bought this HDMI cable later buy more HDMI cables, and it's like, that, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, like, it's conceivable that at least an HDMI cable, you could get a new thing hook up your tv and need another cable but but even then like it's like uh closing the barn door after the horse has already left like you missed the opportunity to sell like an hdmi table they just bought one like is the i mean maybe for consumables like hey you bought this orange juice you're gonna drink it presumably if you like it here's remind you to buy more orange juice but as you get farther and farther away from consumables maybe underwear depending on how rough you are in your underwear maybe you're gonna buy that again but i can tell (laughs) you like these were from stores that sell like all they sell are lights that go on the outside of your house just a million variety that is not a a repeated purchase. So I don't understand why anyone would ever pay for, please show my ad to somebody who just bought a light for the outside of their house. No, I'm with you, but I have it on authority from someone we know that doing the me undies style ad buys are some of the best money they spend. That doing doing the like you... Well, clothes did- are kind of consumable, kind of. But yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I hear you about you know what you're describing. I'm looking here now at at Amazon's homepage and what it thinks I should buy, and it's pretty bananas. I was looking at bells earlier, like you know, um, bells, and uh, and now it's all inspired by inspired by my shopping trends. It recommends many many bells. It's like you like bells. It's like you know the Patton Oswalt thing, but you know, um, I mean. Sometimes, you know, you go, oh, well, you know, they do it because it works, I guess. I guess well, that so makes sense. Amazon has a more Disney-like data because Amazon can can shove things in your face not based on what you purchased, but based on things that you've looked at. And you can, of course, throw that off because someone gives you a link to a weird thing. But here, here's my Amazon front page. Top row, uh, Terry Pratchett books because I was recently looking through to try to get my son some copies of Terry Pratchett books. Oh, nice. I think he's he might be ready for those. Second row... Star Wars Legos. Uh, easily explainable. Uh, third row, toaster ovens. <laughs> and then fourth row, uh, fourth row, additional items to explore. Looks like a bunch of like lightning and USB adapters. So not a bad read, but mm-hmm. I can tell you that I'm not in the market for a toaster. I can understand why they're showing them to me. Maybe they think I'm desperately looking for a toaster and I'm not satisfied with any of the ones I get. I've got everything covered there. But like that is more along the lines of the Magic Band thing. It's the, it's the like the reselling of information, especially about purchases to other vendors. Because like, hey, this guy bought an X. You right. sell X. This it's much more valuable for you. You know, as far as you're concerned, it's way more valuable for you to throw your ad in front of this person's face than anyone else. Talking about something. What you're talking about is something more like. Uh, you expressed an interest in replacing your shattered windshield. This is this is here. Would you like some more information <laughs> yeah. about replacing a shattered windshield? It's like, well, yeah, I did that, and yeah. like, I don't think I'm gonna need that again anytime soon. Yeah, especially if they know you bought one, like you actually, uh, you know, so contracted weird. out to do it. It's like I'm not in the market for another windshield unless you're gonna come and smash my new one with a bat. I'm not gonna buy another. Like, it's not a anyway. I'll tell you what I think about right now. Um, in uh, four hours, it'll be my daughter's birthday. 
so we've done some Amazon shopping for uh, birthday stuff. I had to do. I, I I used something I hadn't done before. So you know we've got we've got Amazon Prime. Uh, Amazon Fresh exists in our area, but I I use Instacart. But we recently, kind of recently, got Prime Now. Do you know about this? I think is that the one that gives you like the either the same day or even two, two, even... two hour delivery. Yeah. And uh, but it's 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 pretty it's pretty bananas to be able to. It was it's almost like the days of of Cosmo, and I had to like in order to get to have it be worth enough to like get this discount, the the first time discount, I bought a couple extra things. So it was really strange though. So I, I went in and in less than two hours, what did I get? Uh, a box of Lucky Charms because one day this year, my daughter gets to have Lucky Charms because it's her birthday. I got a box of Lucky Charms, a, a new Wii controller, a little like, you know, with the handles, the black one with the handles, um, uh, a Saga comic book, it was, but it was completely crazy. Now, now the, why am I bringing this up? Here's what interests me. Do you know about this? Like now, in places where they're getting same day delivery, which is like Prime now, but you know, more and more places. Like, do you have this in Boston where you now get the option of like free same day? So like you order it on at like eight o'clock at night and you can get it the next day. Do you have that? I always look for that. I don't think I've seen it. The closest I've seen is free next day with Prime. We get it. We get it a lot. Um, but here's the interesting part about this, and I want to know, I want your data guy guess on how this works. Uh, the story goes, this might have been on that 60 Minutes report, but supposedly they're getting so good at knowing, basically they're getting, they're getting good at knowing what somebody is likely to order such that there's some stock of some things that would be available the next day. And essentially, the way they make it sound is that they're shipping stuff out to your area that you're likely to buy even if you haven't bought it yet. What's your guess on how they do that? I mean, I guess there must be some things where like, obviously, HDMI cables. Let's have some of those. People are going to order those. Um, Saga comic book. Yeah, Saga volume four. It's a pretty popular comic. But like, how do you think they do that? How do you, do you think they're, how much in the aggregate are they guessing what people are going to want? And how much do they go like, oh, you know, you just bought this one kind of thing. Now I bet you're going to want accessories for that thing. Do you, how personal do you think that gets? I don't think that is very personal because they just have such a volume of data that, and the number of things that people buy, like it's not any new exotic things. People, it's the, the categories on the left side of Amazon, like, you know, kitchen appliances, or whatever, those tend to be the same. So they just got to look at what, you know, what is the shape of the graph for purchases of underwear over the course of the entire year? And then assign numbers to the y-axis on that graph and lay over a bunch of years of each other, see if there's a year-to-year trend. Like, you can very easily say that for the month of December in this city, based on the six past years of underwear sales of these types, we need this amount of boxers, this amount of briefs, and these brands that seem to be popular. Like, you can guess pretty well. Like, because in the aggregate, not because of one particular person. Like, they don't care if they're off by one or ten or hundred. That's why it works best in big cities. I think this all just falls to the, the, the huge mountain of data they have. Unless there's some new thing that catches them by surprise well suddenly boxers become incredibly more popular than they used to be because some celebrity wears them in a movie they become super famous and they didn't predict that and now they have to adjust but barring that paper towels hdmi cables televisions uh cell phones uh underwear canned food Mm -hmm. uh tools like it's just I, i feel like that every one of those problems that seems magical when it happens us individually just completely falls under the weight of the amount of data they have because they've been around for so long and they can just yeah, choose choose your smoothing algorithm. Right, and then, then the, just let the data go. It tells the story. But then, so anyway, I, I get that. I mean, that makes sense. But then, then it's funny because under my more items to consider, 
It's, um, what did I look up that would have brought this up? I've got biographies, more items to consider. I get biographies of Johnny Ive, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Dieter Rams, uh, et cetera. It's all like computer people books. And I'm trying to think like what I bought recently that has anything to do with that. You probably, I mean, so a lot of the things, part of the, the supposed magic is that, uh, we all know the same things are popular and most people like popular things. You know what I mean? By definition. Right. It's almost like so, a medium doing a cold reading. It's like, oh, sometimes do you feel yeah. like you're smarter than other mm-hmm. people? There you go. And so an example I'm staring at right now, I'm back to my Amazon homepage and it's got Adele's new album up there. And I'm Me like, too. you know what? I just pre-ordered that today. Everybody is interested in Adele. The reason it's on the front page is not because I pre-ordered in iTunes. How did they know I pre-ordered? They didn't know I pre-ordered in iTunes. It's on the front page because it's out today right. and it's an incredibly it's popular yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so exactly, it's like it's like the cold reading type thing. And so for the Steve Jobs stuff, the Steve Jobs movie is out in theaters. Um, I'm sure you've clicked on enough things involving tech yeah. that they can say uh, this movie that's out in theaters that's been heavily advertised, that's in the news. Uh, this guy who buys tech stuff, maybe throw that in his face. It's not a big leap. My my recommendations uh, in health and personal care: five things. Uh, four different kinds of Ziploc bags. Okay, fair enough. I buy a lot of Ziploc bags. Four kinds of Ziploc bags and a little dropper bottle of beard oil. <laughs> Which I think now they're just they're just testing me. Now this is this is going to be like a like a captcha. I think they probably want me to click on beard oil, even though I don't have a beard and I don't need the oil. Wait, wait. wait. So do you know what beard oil is? Yeah, I just learned about it from uh, listening to Mike Hurley talk about it. So enlighten me. Oh, uh, it keeps it soft and shiny. So it's literally oil that you just put into your beard. Like usually, the, the task with hair is that you know because we're not in the fifties and putting it, it is not in our oil hair. that has been squozen from a beard. <laughs> well, say, like normally you don't put oil into hair, right? Like it's not a thing we do in the modern age. Like we I, have I put these... olive oil on before I shave, but that's not you're not putting it like onto the hair on top of your head. You know what I mean? Oh, like you're no, not. No, no. You no. don't want your head to be oily. A lot of the shampoos we use are you know cut through grease and oil to make our hair not oil and yet you have a beard and you're deciding you know what this beard needs it needs mm-hmm. some more oil oil I w- yeah <laughs> i would never have this problem because i naturally produce a tremendous amount of oil that if i had a beard i can tell you i would not need any beard oil in fact i could donate to other people by bringing it out that would be really nice like like people giving their hair to people for like cancer wigs you should do that yeah. if you need any nose grease i am your man oh my god thank you john that is so nice yeah, I just squeegee that right off. We're running a little long here. Uh, what do look? We we wrap up on the uh, sustainability because yeah, like, no, what, we've, we've what moved is, on for that. Well, what does the future look like for you? Because I, I keep coming back to like it's interesting because the 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 actual and opportunity costs of any decision about how they change that park. Gosh, I just can't even imagine the meetings they must go through deciding like what to do with this many square feet of the Magic Kingdom. You know, uh, just it's. I mean, I, I th- I'm thinking of like all the things that they've always been doing, I and mean, we keep talking about the people in the mascot outfits. But it's any, any, pick anything, pick any position in the park, any aspect of the park, like you're talking about. On the one hand, you've got the we need to keep doing what we've always been doing. And on the other hand, you have the we need to change to main, be relevant so we don't become a retro nostalgia act. Um, and in both of those things, how do you? How do you navigate, like, I don't want to be, I don't want our set of people to be the generation that ruined Disney World. Right, right. Right. right? And on the other hand, I don't want to be the generation that was stick in the mud and didn't progress. And then on the third hand, like, 
shareholders are yelling, we need to make money. There are bean counters. They do exist. How do we maintain, and Apple's faced with the same thing, how do we maintain this level of excellence typified by the idealized, if not realistic, uh, picture of our fearless leader? Um, how do we how do we sustain this? Because well, uh, in the case, like, like if you think about like like us, well, first of all, how many kids today know about Cinderella from watching the movie like versus are like familiar with Cinderella's castle. You know, in that case, the there is that kind of meta turning on itself element of like there's the kids who know about the park stuff from the park and you can ride for a generation and a half on the memories of the parents, right? Like I remember coming here as a kid, oh, it's still like that here except better and so on. The question in some ways becomes like what does that look like in 20 years? Right? Yeah, and like I said, we've already turned over that so many times. Like I there are, there are things in here that I have no memory of and that I don't think my parents even experienced, but they're just, there's still a ride dedicated to that. You know, maybe I know of it, but it's not like I have any memory of it. But it, like, I feel like that part of it, it almost doesn't matter because you can rotate in and repurpose and turn what used to be a part of Magic Kingdom into some other castle property, castle related property. Like, think of the things that go into Tomorrowland. Like, Buzz Lightyear just slots right in there. The, Tomorrowland was not made with Buzz Lightyear in mind. Buzz Lightyear comes around, you know you put them in Tomorrowland, it fits right. fine. Like, they just, it's it's reasonable turnover. It's the But everything else is like, given that there's going to be this turnover and everything, how do you, it, it, I come back to the Apple genius type things. Like, I feel like Apple has not maintained the stores the way they were when they first opened. I think everyone involved in Apple retail would agree. The customers are different. The staff is different. The experience of the store is different. Yeah, not in necessarily in bad ways, but the one one thing I think you could say about it is the door. The stores were more like Disney in the beginning than they are now. Maybe like, and I feel like what Apple has found through either bitter experience or conscious choice is that the way Apple stores used to be cannot be sustained with the modern levels of people that go through Apple stores. Like, there's just too many people. Um, to sustain the stores the way they were. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily worse. Like, what are you going to do? Like, well, no, it's more important for the, like the stores aren't a ride. You know, the stores are there to get people products and to get them help with the products they have or whatever. They got to do what they got to do. Disney World has done an amazing job of scaling their operation. The number of people that, you know, I went there on an off time when most kids in the country were back in school, but my kids weren't, you know, because the school starts later here. Um, there were tons of people there. They've managed to scale it up by having Animal Kingdom and Epcot and Magic Kingdom and all the different things or whatever. Like there is a limit to it, but they've done an amazingly good job of of scaling up. Um, I, I'm, you know, the, I, I really feel like the, the experience of most people going through there is not supposed to be this melancholy pondering of the sustainability of this experience. But it was kind <laughs> of like that's that's what I always had in my mind. It's what I had in my mind in Universal too. That like. At that point, I hadn't even been to Disney, but I was thinking, like, I can see the parts of this that, that, that Universal is not able to keep up. And Disney did a better job, but I'm looking at it and just thinking, like, I don't know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be thinking deep thoughts about it. Like, I was enjoying it. I was amazed. I, I was enjoying the whimsy. And I was reflecting on how much I was able, as a cynical, cranky person, how much I bought into everything that was there. How much I was just, like, I was along for the ride, literally and figuratively. And how does that magic work? And when I see the cracks in it, does that make me fear that this is going to go away? Or was that always been there or whatever? I don't know. It was very strange. I'm, I'm a strange person and I had a strange experience in Disney. A positive experience, but a different one, I think. What would you like to see them do? I mean, you know, just, you know, as an armchair fan, 
Like, what would you, what directions do you think they could or should go in the next five to 15 years? I think for the most part, what they should be trying to do is, you know, is to, you know, job one, don't get worse. And job two, find the places where they are not living up to the ideal that I think they still have a good, you know, grasp on and find a way to achieve that ideal without compromising the things that make the entire enterprise possible. Because it's very easy to get, so I'm going to, you know, if you could be a benevolent dictator for Disney and say, I need things to be back to the way they were, even if they were never really that way, back to the way that I think they were in the 60s and 70s when this place was new and everyone was on board, like back to the old, day, old days of the Apple store where the Apple geniuses were paid six-figure salaries and were all wise sages in the stores, had a few people in them and everyone, you know, like... I want to go back to that and, it's, you know, spare no expense. I don't care how much it costs. And then you bankrupt the company and Disney World gets sold off and they build condos there. <laughs> you have failed to that. That is not a good job. Like you have to. Reality is the reality. What you have to do is find a way to, as Walt Disney himself did, find a way to get the money you need to build the thing that you want to build in the same way that, you know, the classic Steve Jobs thing of like, you know, milking the macro alt's worth and get working on the next big thing. Sounds cynical and terrible, but the bottom line is he came back to the company, brought it back to profitability, got money coming in, and did start working on various next big things, iPod, iPhone, iPad. It, he, you know, the, the strategy sounds cynical and gross uh, when it's phrased in that crass way, but it was the way forward. And so how do you get to build this giant theme park on this swampland? You got to make a bunch of somewhat lame tv shows for abc and you know you got to do what you got to do to make your thing happen so i i think the the direction for disney and you could say they're doing it is to maintain this not this place not this particular theme park but like the ability to to offer the product that i was saying is like what disney's actual product is this kind of like place where you can feel like the hurtful things about real life are suspended briefly and you get to uh enjoy all aspects of something in a simpler way with your family to sustain that, whether it's through movies that they make or parks that they make or, you know, products or any, anything having to do with it, the Disney branding or whatever, figure out what it is that you have to do to bring in enough money to be able to not only sustain, but enhance and, and cause all these things to, to thrive. And maybe that is buying up a bunch of other companies and, you know, owning star Wars and doing all the other stuff. Like maybe that's all part of, uh, you know, that, that to sustain this, you necessarily need to feed the fire with more logs of wood or logs of cash and funnel that into your future things that are going to give that, you know, that sense of satisfaction. I'm not even sure which direction it flows. Maybe at this point, the people paying $105 for single day tickets is, is funneling into uh, the development of Star Wars, though I imagine that movie is going to make its money back pretty handily. So I don't think that's the direction money is flowing at this point. But whatever you need to do that, like, that's the only way anything like this happens. It, you know, people don't come into this world with this unlimited pile of money. They have to find a way to get it and they have to, and they usually want to put it towards something, whatever their vision might be, whether it's Elon Musk making electric cars and going to space or Walt Disney, uh, you know, doing a series of perhaps not like, uh, you know, not what he envisioned want, having to do in service of this thing that he really wanted to do, which was to make these theme parks that became his, you know, sign lasting signature physical element after the, you know, the, the great movies that, that kicked off the, the, you know, Disney as being a thing. So that, that would be my advice to companies like Disney is that you have, you have to just find a way 
to fund the thing that you know you need to do and you know resist the the forces of entropy and capitalism that that want to turn you into uh six flags sorry six flags I want to go. No, I think my kid's old enough. You know, for a long time, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've been thinking about what you said last time about the like, well, just be okay with the fact it's going to be a whole lot of money. Don't get too worked up about it. And then just just go and have fun. Save save money for five years. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. I'll do that. But you got to start that five years ago, though, Mm. if you want to go now. Mm. I I didn't tell you, like, for one of the things we did, and this is also my wife's doing, my uh, very industrious wife is, all of the, you know, we do the Amazon stuff where you, you do Amazon Prime and you get like these Amazon points that whatever. Anyway, their their little fun money thing, we never spend it. Like we just like she would yell at me if I went through the checkout process and didn't notice that it had put like, you know, $11 of our Amazon Prime money towards. No, zero that out. The only thing like all of our Amazon, all of our Amazon like credit card purchases, all the extra Amazon it just accumulated there. The whole point of those Amazon thing was this is Disney fund. Oh, that's good. For years and years before, I think before any of our kids were born, we started doing this. I bet she's good at Monopoly. She's good at everything. Yeah. Stupid wives. Seriously. <laughs> but anyway, like that, you know, it's the, yeah, the, that's the, that's, that's the way I get comfortable with the money thing is that you feel like you've put in the work so that you don't, you know, and you literally have of like planning for this, saving the money, waiting to the kids of the right age or whatever. And then you don't feel so bad about spending this ungodly amount of money. And, and you know, the other trap that you can fall into the family vacation is don't feel like this, you know, the, the clock goes well, this has to be the perfect vacation. And if anything goes wrong, it's ruined. Right. You just have to, you just have to get into the mindset. Like we are going to roll with the punches. Well, you, like, you know, nothing... it's, so easy to, it's so easy to forget that it's supposed to be fun. Right. And that, that things are going to go wrong. Kids are going to have tantrums. This is not that like you had this kid's entire life up to this point to teach him how not to have tantrums. If you did a good job or didn't do a jo- job, well, that you know you're going to reap what you sow right now. But don't turn this trip into the time where you're going to use negative reinforcement to enforce a particular behavior because <laughs> you're spending you're spending a lot of money yeah. and you want the kid. To, it's not saying you have to spoil them and do whatever they want and give it. Like hopefully you have raised a kid that is well adjusted enough that all you need to do is just lay off one step. Just lay off one step on the discipline to make it so that everybody has a good time for this one week. Like you are trying to be your own Disney world for the kid for this one week until we get back to the routine, you know, back at home and everything. And hopefully if you've done a good job with your kid at home, they will sail through this and be dazzled by Disney the whole way. And for the most part, that worked out. Like, I think we only had a few close to parental meltdowns, plenty of kid meltdowns. But the good thing is, like, can we avoid having a parent meltdown? Oh, right. Sure. That is the key because kids are always going to have meltdowns and they bounce back for whatever. Like, can you, and I, I found the most difficult aspect of it was having our entire family in a single hotel room. Much more trying than I thought it would be. Yeah, because nobody gets a break. You can't escape them. There's no place you can go. And no. they, they they fight constantly. And it's just, and, and they're loud and they're bouncing off the walls because they've just been at Disney and they've had 17 desserts at the little, you know, dessert thing down the hall where they give you free dessert every day. Great idea, Disney. Mm. Anyway, uh, I, it was, I think overall it was a net win. The other thing, like, we talked about this after we were going, like, when we're there, we're thinking, imagine how much better this would be if we didn't have the kids. <laughs> it just sounds rude. Like, we're there, <laughs> we're there for the kids. Sure. But boy, it, you can enjoy things so much better as an adult if there are no kids there. I know uh, Casey does that and everything. Like, just go to Disney as, as a set of adults. It is because you, you can just, when you're there, you're like, can't imagine how great this would be if it was just us. I've gotten so much better over the years of, of figuring out something fun for everybody there. Yeah. Or so, you it, know what? You, such that 
it doesn't seem weird anymore that somebody in their 20s or 30s would just go there and walk around. Oh, no, this, it ton, I would say I saw more people without kids than with kids, which amazed wow. me. The tremendous amount of like, you know, obviously tourists, like people from other countries, stuff like that. They never had, seemed to have any kids and just a huge number of people without kids. It was really or with kids that are much older than you would think, like preteen and teen type things. It is not a bunch of little toddlers. Uh, you know, I don't know what I expected because last time I went there, I was very young, but a lot of adults. And I can understand it because that's what we're saying. We're like, you know, because it would be like we would have an even more fun if we didn't have to deal with any kid meltdowns. You know, oh, we could so go to adult restaurants. We could stay out and see the fireworks at Epcot without worrying that the kids are going to just turn you, into you could puddles just have, of goo. Just have a minute of silence. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, like speaking of pillows, like the, the Ritz, you know, notice what you throw off the bed. Disney this is the one tip I would give Disney. Do not put cylindrical pillows on your beds. Kids oh, use no. them as weapons. Oh, come on. Have some sense. We had to hide those pillows. I re- Realistically, what we should have done is gone to like the concierge and say, please take these pillows out of our room. <laughs> <laughs> like We didn't think of that. We thought we could keep it under control. Like, oh, goodness. I, I tell you, I don't know. I, I think I probably will complain about some aspects that on, about sustainability on ATP if we ever talk about it. So I didn't talk about everything now. But uh, one, one uh, great thing from our trip is... The, uh, we, we stayed on property because it cost Yeah, I was going to ask, where did you end up staying? We were at the Beach Club, which is near Epcot. You can walk to Epcot from it. Um, we did a pretty good job of like with the Disney planning and everything of like picking the places. I always pick the place. I, you know, she would point to these different places and where do you want to go? I'm like, what is the closest to the park? Like walk, location, location, location is how I picked. Anyway, um, we had a little balcony in our room, like a little sliding door on a little balcony with some chairs and stuff. Every single night at 9 p.m., uh, off that balcony were fireworks every single night. Like that seems, it was, that seems like that'd be fun once. It was fun the whole time. I'm telling you, it did not get old for me. Really? Like, you know, when you're like, oh, oh fireworks! It's not, it's, like, not like, it's not like it's fireworks bedtime. on the Fourth of July. A full fledged, complete quality fire. Yeah, it wasn't bedtime. The kids were not going to bed. Like, like, you would think it would like, oh, great fireworks again or whatever. Every time it was like, it was like those, those ads where you're like, where you see the family and they're like having a dinner and then they see the fireworks. They're like, like, oh yeah, that's going to happen. Nope. It can happen because they have them every single freaking night in like seven different locations. And it was like, you're tired. You're, you're hanging out in the room. Everyone's kind of winding down. Uh, you've had your meal, you've had your dessert and you go out to the balcony. It's nighttime. You let some of the slightly cooler air in and you get to see fireworks. It never got old. It just never did. It was like, I mean, how many fireworks, how many fireworks displays have you seen in your life? The total number, I think Seven. I doubled the total number. Right. Seven and or eight. I, yeah. And I, and I saw that number that week. And, and the last time I saw it and the first time I saw it, it was just as like relaxing and enjoyable as, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't feel like, like I had to be watching it. It was just like, I mean, maybe it would get old eventually but like it didn't you know that that's the kind of mindset i was in that i was like how did you how did you prep did you uh read a book my wife i'm sure read lots of things we had like, uh, it used to be the burn burn bomb book it used to be like the book that you would read to learn how to really nail disneyland disney yeah, world so, so she uh we engaged the services of a disney vacation planner person whose only job is to plan people's vacation to disney wow that is a job that you can have i did i did not know that that you yeah that definitely is a job you can have and for the most part i would say i recommend it because there is a lot to there's a lot of decisions to be made and a lot of things to do and it can be overwhelming if you don't have someone there reassuring you that you're not missing anything essentially is the most important job because you could probably figure it all out on your own but you'd be wondering if you're doing something foolish or like 
And then you can just read websites about like what is actually the good restaurants to go to, what is actually the ride that your kid is going to like, which one is the thing you can't miss versus the thing that's not a big deal for me. Well, just, I spent, like, just, just timing stuff, like knowing like, you know, oh, oh you know what, make your dinner reservation at this other place. Your kids are more likely to like it. Do it an hour later because you don't want to miss this thing that's happening here that nobody ever remembers to go to. Yeah. And rules of thumb, like do not think you can plan a, 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 your dinner here and your lunch there. You will spend your entire time between dinner and lunch conveying your family from there to there. You will not have a good time. Like certain things that you should just avoid because you you think like oh this is just a giant smorgasbord of things i can choose from and i want one of those and one of those and one of those is like locality and how long it takes to travel from place to place and how much you are not going to want to walk in 98 degree heat and 90 percent humidity for any period of time because you will melt into a, a puddle on the asphalt <laughs> like you know when you're planning it you can have all these grand plans but it's good to have someone there reminding you this is how many things you can realistically do in a day. This is how far apart things can actually be. You, By this point, you will be so tired, you will not want to do this. Your kids will not make it to here. Like, at a certain point, your kids stop functioning. Like, you know, they, their their batteries run out. At a certain point, the parents stop functioning, too. So um, I think we did a really good job of planning it, mostly because my wife's desire to do everything was tempered to my, my desire to do nothing. And so <laughs> we, it's like, no nighttime activities. There's no way in hell we're going to have a day that starts at 6 a.m., that ends at 11 p.m. with both kids there the whole day. Uh, worst you can Florida do is overplan. I mean, like overschedule something like that. It's the right. Worst. So, like, you know, it'll be there if you wanted to. You know, like, just yeah. I think we did a, a really good job of working that. Occasionally, we we misjudged some distances, and what we also didn't count on was the rain because there was like tropical storm, what tropical storm Erica or something was out off the coast. And we know it was like getting close to hurricane season; it was a potential. But this was just like. It didn't affect the weather that much, except that it threw a bunch of rain in our direction on, on times when it normally wouldn't rain. So that you know that was just another vacation adventure. We got to have ponchos and walk around in the rain and do all that fun stuff as well. But yeah, planning planning is key. I think we spent a, a good year planning this whole thing. You have to cry out loud. You have to make your your restaurant reservation six months in advance. Wow, like that's that's the type. Like, it says like a D day invasion. It is a, you know and. <laughs> And I feel like that plan is like, isn't it all stressful? Like, that's why you don't want to get into the trap of like, we spent so long planning this. This costs so much money. We have everything has to be perfect. It's just like, you do. It's like studying for a test. You do the studying so you can relax on the day of the test. You do the prep so you can actually relax when you're there. I'm in. Yeah, we we would like to go back if you know next time we save money for five years. Yeah, that's all it takes. <laughs> get those get those reservations early. Kids, come home from college. We're going to Disney again. 